right. Excellent. Greetings. And thank you again for coming by one of my delicious Merge Worlds story uh, podcasts. Um, I appreciate you coming by to uh, listen to my tale yet another week. Um, I'm excited. I'm, I'm really excited with the part of the uh, story we're doing right now. Of course, is the uh, Corman adventure, or what I like to call <laughs> part one of the Saving Michael. Um, <clears throat> we'll do a brief little recap as normal, uh, and then we will move into the story. Um, as always, thank you for coming by. If you have a good time tonight, please remember to hit the subscribe button and click like if you enjoy the show. All right. So, again, as we had discussed previously, um, Michael... Uh, with the destruction of Minara, the magical spear that uh, Michael has merged with, an intelligent artifact that um, helps him fight undead, his soul is trapped inside. And our heroes have one year to have the uh, spear physically repaired in perfect condition, which in itself is a feat. Then they have to find a way to have it magically recreated um, to be able to awaken Menandra's uh, magic inside. That part they haven't figured out yet, but they did travel to the lost dwarven kingdom of Corman. Um, so, with the... Uh, with Corman being a dwarven kingdom in exile, they all live outside the mountain, because 200 years ago, something bad happened down in there, and they all had to flee for their lives. They don't know what it is down there, but anyone who goes in majority of them never return. One of those few people is a young dwarven man named Cole, who is part of the Ventoy clan, uh, which is one of the less popular and rarer Ventoy. Uh, that clan, there's not as many of them. We'll find out more about that later. Uh, but he is someone who goes in and tries to gather things, supplies, lost artifacts or items, and return them to the people above land. So he is sent by the dwarven king, or High Thane, to escort the heroes down into the different cities of Corman. Um, because if they, if they can manage to successfully find it and destroy whatever the evil thing inside that's been keeping the dwarves out all these years, the dwarves will be able to return home and they will have um, the ability to repair Menandra. So this quest to free Corman is as much beneficial to them as it is the dwarves. Probably more of the dwarves, to be honest with you. So they traveled in with Cole, and they went through what is known as the Upper Kingdom, or Upper Corman. Um, inside there, they have uh, first managed to make their way halfway through before they were attacked by a whole bunch of little nasty little creatures known as Sharnlings, uh, which is something I made. It's just me. <laughs> but Sharnlings are based off of a Sharn, which is an actual D&D &D monster. Um, and Sharnlings... Uh, attack them en masse. They manage to escape to uh, one of the roads that leads down deeper, and they manage to close the gate behind them. Um, the problem they have is they are not able to reopen that gate, but it did protect them from the Sharnlings. Continuing to travel down that road, making their way towards Central Kingdom, or Central Corman, they found the full-size Sharn, and they fought it successfully, defeating it. Um, but what that means, they're not exactly sure. At that point, they proceeded to continue down the road, which is a, really just a really big tunnel, <laughs> down towards central Corman. 
Uh, so let's see. Want to mention I'm still waiting for the guy who gave Mercy her tiara to show up again somewhere. Or did I miss it somewhere else? Nope, you haven't missed it. That gentleman has not shown up yet. Um, so yes. But, all right. Uh, UA subclass for Warlock Call. The Undead reads really cool. Oh, okay. I'll look into that. All right. So, uh, that's it. Unless anybody has any questions about what previously happened, uh, I think I'm ready to jump in and uh, continue on. Ah. I like it when you when someone latches onto a a character that popped in, always wondering if they'll return. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But the suspense is killing you, and I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Whoops. Move my mouse. All right. Stop it. There we go. So uh, let's see. We found a couple magical items. Nothing of major um, usefulness, other than the gem of brightness, which is helpful because it does cause a flash of light. It, uh, it can work like a torch. It can glow. It can be used as a light source. Um, and it can uh, once per every so often basically do a blinding light for a moment. So underground, anybody in the infravision, that would really mess them up for a couple seconds of blinding light. Uh, but that does have a cooldown. Uh, using it just as a torch, you can pretty much on and off as much as you need. <laughs> Turtle's got blank. Blanket, snacks, and popcorn. Well, excellent. You, my friend, are prepared. I have three drinks and a bag of spice drops, so I'm ready to go as well. All right. So it takes them a couple of days to travel down this road to central Corman. Um, as I've mentioned before, the layers of Corman are very far apart, and they're not directly above each other. Like, upper Corman's here, but then you go down a distance to get to the middle, then down a distance, so it's they're not directly above each other, but they're all inside this giant mountain range where Corman, uh, upper Corman stands. Um, and there are even some small offshoot tunnels to small villages, towns, mining colonies um, that are out there. We are only going to be dealing with the three layers, uh, three main cities of Corman in this story. But what that means is there's plenty of Corman left unexplored. Maybe we'll see some of that in the future. Um, but let's see. So, they make their way down, and they may... Oh, uh, was one thing in Skyrim? I can't be here. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I'd have to think on that. Um, so, as they're traveling down, Cole explains what they're going to find in Central Corman. Central Corman is uh, a large cent uh, open cavern. Remember, Upper City was just literally tunnels and stuff and everything going through... Uh, uh, the, the rock. So, there, and while there's big, you know, there there be clearings and parks and such. Overall, it's just a major city. Um, Central Corman's a little bit different. There, it's a one giant cavern, and in the center is Central Corman, and then branching off of that are three smaller caverns that themselves are the size of small cities. Um, now, on this level. Uh, the High Thane normally would live within the center, which is the largest city, um, which is also, if I recall, yes, big round of page. Um, also would be where you'd find uh, other stuff like uh, small temples and such, but not the major temple. The major temple we'll, we'll get to in a moment. I actually have some maps of this, so let me get back to them. Um, okay, so there are... Uh, the High Thane lives in the center, but there are three caverns that branch off that three of the different clans live in. 
on finding that paper now. Nope. Thorman. Oh, I forgot they're alphabetized. Okay. Corman. Okay. So, on this level, you're going to find the Rygar, you'll find the Keban, and you'll find the Dolom. These are three of the clans of Corman. And there are clanless folks as well. People marry in between and so on and so forth. But um, that's where the, the primary, each cavern is where that clan would be. Um, so um, as they approach down there, there are, at this level, only, like I said, there's two ways up from, but there's only one main road down to lower Corman. So they have to make their way to that one road to continue down. Um now, Cole has never been this far himself, so he doesn't know what they're going to come into here. Um, and on top of that, he doesn't know if the source of whatever this is could be here. Um, so this puts the heroes in a bit of a uh, quandary, because they're like, okay, do we continue down to lower, or do we stay on middle central Corman and check out the major middle city as well as the three large, smaller things? Um, it, uh, it... it it really kind of threw them because they had to figure out, well, we're kind of on a schedule. We It could take weeks to search everywhere. Um, so they're just more looking for clues than anything else. Um, so when they arrive, they arrive in uh, what is the northwestern corner of the cavern. Now, the three clans, there is the is up in the northeastern, direct east, and then southwest. Now, directly to, on the western side is the primary main uh, temple of Corman. Um, and it's where all the different gods and such be worshipped. Uh, unlike some temples above ground, the dwarves don't really tolerate evil clerics. So you're not going to come across any of them. But good and neutral clerics could be found aplenty um, within the temple's grounds. So that gives them, in this thing, three caverns, the central city, and the temple. Um, and after thinking about it, they decided, well, we have to check them all at least a little bit. Um, because if we skip one, our dungeon master is evil and he'll make that where the primary evil was. To which, you know, I'm that kind of guy. But I know where everything is ahead of time. I don't move stuff. I'm not, one, I'm not that kind of guy. I don't like to move the, the bad guy around so you have to do everything. Sometimes they find the bad guy on their first guess. Sometimes it takes a while. Um, but I have it all planned out where everything is ahead of time. So sometimes I build elaborate traps or uh, encounters with monsters. And the paths they choose just never go down that road. And that's fine. I'll save that and use it again in another adventure down the road. So I'm never too upset if they uh, bypass something. Um, unless it's you know, something that's required for the quest. And then they'll have to come back. So... Here in the central, they're like, okay, so if we're coming out in this corner, our best bet is to travel uh, to the temple. This is not the best picture, but I'm going to try to show it to you guys and see if it shows up here a little bit. Let me see. Can you guys see that focus? There we go. So they're coming down the tunnel in the up, upper left-hand corner there. The three caverns, that thing sticking to the... Left-hand side, that's the temple, the main city in the middle, and then there's another tunnel going down in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, the second road actually comes into next to the temple, but I didn't have it drawn here. The second one that comes from up top, for some reason. Uh, this is Upper Corman. Let's try and do that. 
so they came from the uh, the halls, which is at the bottom, through the winding road. Then there's Thanet and Span going over top the chasm. And then what you see is that outer wall. And then the line at the top, that's basically where the city starts. So you go in, where the, the cavern things, there's buildings and such in between there. Um, hopefully that's slightly visible. I tried, to, I, I found the pictures like right before the stream started and I didn't have time to transfer to my computer and all that stuff. Um, so apologize if those were horrible. I'll try to get better copies up for you guys relatively soon. If at any time you'd like me to reshow those, feel free to throw that out. I don't, I don't care to do that. Okay, so they're determined, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to go to the temple first. They decided to go right, which is normally against everything that they stand for. Um, they always, always want to go left. But in this situation, um, they decided that the temple would be where they want to go first because it's least likely to be the source of the evil, right? If they don't tolerate evil clerics, plus the ground is going to be somewhat holy ground. It would have to be pretty powerful to uh, take the temple from all the, that kind of thing. So they figured that's an easy one to knock out first, and it might give them a, a base of operations in case they're down here for a while. Uh, so they broke the player's creed and went right instead of left. <laughs> but that's okay. They managed to successfully uh, travel a distance. That would look like a small area. Uh, it takes hours to cross that. It's a huge cavern. You can't see the other side. You can't see the top of it. Normally, you'd see lights in the top because, of course, there's buildings and stuff built hanging down and the, the stalegi, whatever they are, and then uh, all the other buildings in between those because those cities are primary cities, but there are towns and houses and stuff in between throughout the cavern. There's roads that lead to that. So imagine, again, it's like a kingdom above ground. You know, that may be three major cities with a king castle in the middle, but there's small villages and roads connecting them and farms and so on and so forth. It's the same idea, except deep, deep, deep below the earth. Or merged worlds. Whatever the case may be. So, they first make it to the temple. So, the temple itself wasn't a problem. They got in there pretty easily and didn't run into a lot of snags. I'm grabbing me. Book here. Uh, so they didn't run into a lot of snags. When they got in there, um, they were able to successfully go in. They didn't find anything of evilness, if you will, um, that jumped right out at them in there. Um, and they wouldn't. Again, it being a temple, uh, they found that there were um, what looked to be some type of barricades, some type of defense was set up here. Um, but something... Or some things, they can't tell from what they're seeing damage-wise, um, tore through there. And I, when I say tore through there, one of the massive doors, not as big as the doors out there, but still big metal doors, is hanging from one hinge um, and is bent almost in half uh, outwards. So something didn't push through it, it ripped it open. Um, and these doors are probably about 14 or 15 feet tall, uh, probably about a foot thick and pure metal. Uh, so this is not easy to do. Something or something's ripped that open. And again, they find uh, skeletons, bones, broken weapons and things um, on the stairs of the temple itself. And they make their way, as they make their way into the temple, they find less of that. So it looks like the battle took place 
on the front, the steps, of you will, to imagine like, a, like in Washington, D.C., you got all the big steps that lead up to the big building. Um, it's going to be the steps, if you will. Uh, that's where the barricade and the fight was. And then there is definitely a whole mess of carnage at the door and around the door, but nothing more than just a couple feet in. So whatever busted down the door, it didn't go in very far. As they continue in the temple, and it's a large, large temple, uh, but again, large temple, dwarven size. So the large ornate doors are still very often too short for Darsh. He has to duck to get in places. The rooms are, most of them are large and spacious that he can walk in. Um, but, you know, some of the small would be the bedrooms or kitchen areas and things he would not. And they do a relatively thorough search here. Um, this was the one place that they had hoped maybe there were some survivors living down here the whole time. Um, this might be the one place. Uh, but instead, what they find is uh, in a back room, again, more, more signs of death. These ones not violent. Uh, it's very likely that from what they determine, um, at least 40 or 50 dwarves. Thank you, Xyluk, for the sub. Yep, there's another one. Wait a second. Okay. It just seems to catch up on the day out of nowhere. Um, so, as they're going in there, um, they find in the back room where clearly someone had probably tried to uh, siege it out, stay in there, and eventually ran out of supplies and died. Uh, uh oh. Can you guys see me? Hold on a second. Can you guys see me? Because on my screen, the playback broke. You can see me. Okay. On the stream, an error has occurred. Please try again later. It's not showing me my own video. So, um, not sure what happened there. But since you can see me and chat is working, that's all I care about. If something happens and the stream stops working, since I won't be able to see it at this point, please shoot me a message. Um, I just really hope this records. Mm-hmm. But you can see me. I'm assuming it can, it'll be okay. Just the playback part may be broken. So, Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, that's funny. I've never had that happen. All right, so... Uh, yes. So they're in there. They're looking around. Um, they did manage to find some magical scrolls that were written in Dwarven. Uh, both Darsh and Cole, of course, able to read some of those things. Um, has some... Uh, Success, and uh, they find some messages, again, talking about um, death in the darkness. There's some notes that are scrawled, but they seem very, very quickly made, um, and so on. Um, I wanted to let you guys know, real quick, as we, before we really move into this, I found my actual sheets where I kept track of the hit points and the skills of the monsters in this section. And when they fought the Sharn, the Sharn had, oddly enough, three heads. Uh, and there was the body, and each head they could attack separately, as a large creature does. It also has three arms, which gave it three different attacks. Uh, attacking and destroying an arm uh, would limit that. So it basically gave them three heads, three arms, and a body to fight. Um, so it kind of counted as seven 
different monsters. Um, but I found all the, the sheets for that. That's where I found the maps and such uh, for this fighting and thing that I was kind of excited about because I don't, I don't find that very much. You know, that doesn't really happen. So uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yes. Okay. So, um, so as they're going around, they don't find anything that's really magic items. I think they found a scroll of something, but it wasn't very useful because the only people that could use clear scrolls is Artemis. She couldn't read Dwarven, so she couldn't do much with it. Uh, so it wasn't that handy for her. Uh, so they uh, searched that. They spent they spent the night there again because they traveled the distance, got there, checked it out, and rested. And the whole time they found nothing. Even though it seems like nothing had gotten in here and that they'd never been, you know, quite attacked and such. They found that it was probably going to be in their best interest to still keep a guard, which they did throughout the night, keeping it uh, protected. But there were no signs or sounds throughout the night, um, which, yeah, imagine that it's not pure silence, right? You're under the ground. There's going to be rocks that crumble off, especially in the disrepair that this place has seen. There'll be things creaking. There are probably banners hanging up that are half-rotted that may creak in a... There's still the occasional breeze that comes down here. And you'd be shocked by that. I did some research. There are breezes and things through different small type of vents and cracks and things that will still occasionally blow underground. Um, but there will be some actual like windage causing things to creak, crumbling. So a lot of times you hear crumbling in the distance. Is that something walking or did a piece of rock just break off? It's hard to tell. Um, they weren't able to determine that anything was outside of the temple and nothing really happened inside throughout the night. Um, they determined that if something happened and they were not able to finish searching this whole level in a, in a single day, that they would do their best to try to get back to the temple as the camp. They took everything with them. They didn't leave anything here, um, but just in case this was going to be their fallback spot. So, um, let's see. They did that. They did that. Excellent. So, at this point, with them being directly to the west, they decided to continue going right. Again, I know, shocking. They continued to go basically counterclockwise uh, towards the closest cavern, uh, which is that of the uh, Dolem. Uh, Dolem were known as merchants, tradesmen, uh, tradesmen and artisans. Um, every clan has everything. You may have some clerics, you may have some warriors, you may have this. Um, but certain clans seem to have a larger amount of specific things. Some clans are more warrior-like, some are more craftsmen-like, so on and so forth. Uh, so these ones were primarily merchants, tradesmen, and artists. Uh, you always go left. <laughs> I go left. That's a Draven thing, man. I always go left. Important things to remember. Um, all right. If you watch video games, I'll always try to go left, too. No, I have no playback. Like, I can see on my uh, OBS everything that you guys are seeing. But in the YouTube window itself, it just has an error symbol. But it shows me it's still streaming. It's recording. It's got live. It's reflecting the people on there. It just Normally, I can see myself twice, one with a tiny bit of delay. And that's what lets me know if it starts freezing up or they start, uh, you know, lagging. I kind of have an idea what that is. So... Okay, so um, they make their way down to the Dolem. All right, let me find the Dolem section here. Mm -hmm. All right, that one's in there. That one's in there. Got it. Okay, 
So, making your way into the Dolem section, they managed to get there again without coming across anything at all. Um, as they oh, go through the open doors, again, as they're traveling along, even just on the roads between the temple and the there are signs of battle. Um, broken weapons, broken armor, plenty of skeletons. Again, things like wagons and such. Uh, bones of animals. The dwarves would have had things like probably maybe horses or mules, things like that to help pull wagons and things. So they find a lot of just refuse and trash. Uh, they don't find anything like big old footprints or nothing like that. No major, what you'd say, claw marks. But again, since there's really no flesh here, it's hard to see exactly what damage was done. Although, again, in many of these skeletons, the bones are thoroughly broken. Um, they also seem, uh, it came across a couple areas where the skeletons were wrapped in rags or robes, which led them to believe they were groups of clerics. Um, and in those situations, uh, the bones were even worse damaged. It was worse in where the clerics were. Throwing that out there. So, um, they get to the, uh, I keep forgetting the name, Dolem area, um, and they make their way inside. The gates, uh, each, each cavern of every clan usually has some type of protection mechanism, you know, close it up, barricade inside, but the gates are wide open. Uh, it doesn't look like they tried to close, there's no damage to the gates, everything looks okay. Um, other than the bodies, there are signs of battle everywhere. And as they wake their way into this section um, of the city, it's uh, when they go in, imagine that they go into another cavern, and the cavern's kind of hollow in the middle, but with all the stuff built on the outside. And in the very center is just a very large like fountain and stuff. Like large, like you can barely see the top of the fountain. It was probably magically lit at some point, um, but that magic would normally have to be refreshed by a major cleric uh, every so often for that to happen. Um, and no one's been down here to do that in a long time. There are no sounds, there are no lights. There's no sign that anything has been in here recently. So they start to search, and they try to be relatively thorough. They spend a good full day searching. They, um, at one point, talk about splitting up, but with the in case they run into more of the Sharnling things, the last thing they want is to have a thousand Sharnlings, you know, kind of, in between them. So they decide to stay together as much as possible. Sometimes when they get in a building, Darsh will wait outside if it's a little hard for him to get inside. Um, things like that. Uh, Tobias uses his spells sparingly um, for like detecting and so on and light, just trying to keep it as uh, ready in case they come across something bad. But uh, they use a torch for most of it for Michael. Um, so a lot of times, he, or not Michael, I'm sorry, uh, Ulrich. So a lot of times Ulrich and Mercy are hanging back, or Ulrich will hang back with Darsh, uh, so that the people that are going inside the buildings can use their infravision and such without the light throwing that off. A little bit easier for them to see in there. Uh, so Ulrich gets a little irritated, uh, not at anybody, but his situation, because he doesn't feel useless. He feels like he's, he's holding him back. When they started this quest, he never thought they'd be going underground, spending all their time in the darkness. He's never been in that kind of a situation. And, you know, they had no idea what they were, this is how it was going to go down. So he's feeling a little bit useless in this situation. They spend the entire day searching and find no signs of anything. Um, there are, as they get into homes and such, they don't really come across a lot of destruction to homes. There's a little here and there. 
um, in the occasional body, but most of the um, bodies, bones, weapons, and such are in the outer area or outside of the cavern. Again, it's like people were trying to flee um, and were not able to make it. Uh, they spent so much time here because they wanted to be thorough. They did not have the opportunity to go back to the Dwarven Temple that night, as they planned on, and ended up camping inside of a uh, old, like it was an inn of some kind that had a little bit more space in a common room that uh, Darsh could kind of relax in. It was big enough that he could stand in there at a big common room, uh, definitely enough room for them all to lay down and still have a watch. But as they rest there and they're talking about this, they're given a little bit of a history about um, Corman by Cole, explaining more about the clans. Each one has their own um, kind of physical traits, if you will. Uh, some clans are darker skinned versus lighter skinned. Uh, some have specifically darker hair, where some only have don't have much hair at all. Everybody grows beards, men and women. Don't be don't be judgmental there. Uh, <laughs> but the way they dress is kind of different. Um, it gives them just a little bit of the history of Corman, which was kind of nice to to be able to have that opportunity to build a little backup uh, or a backdrop to this nation. Um, we spent a lot of time in Paxawal and everywhere, but we really haven't got a lot to learn about how did it come to be. How, what what made Paxawal Paxawal? We just met a lot of people. So this was the first time I really started to delve into a bit of a history of the clans and um, all that kind of stuff. So uh, they didn't find anything in the first cavern, right? Nothing there. Uh, so the night goes by without incident, and they determine that they are then going to... They're going to try to cut straight across to the middle. Because again, if you remember the cavern, they're in the bottom corner. The other two... Uh, caverns are up in the corners opposite them. So uh, they're like, well, we can cut straight across, hit the middle thing, then hit the two caverns up there, and then if we find nothing, all that's left is the tunnel down. Uh, and so they're like, okay, we'll do that. That was the plan they came up with. So they begin making their way across the... Again, again I'm going to give you a, another quick look at the picture. So they were in that bottom one there with the D on it. And so now they're going... Oh, man, I'm backwards here. So now they're going to be making their way towards the center to where the T is. That's where the Thane would live with his family and so on and so forth. Um, so they're going to go up there. Then they were going to go up to the top and hit R. Then they were going to hit K last and then make their way to that bottom tunnel with the with this arrow pointing down. That's how you go down deeper or down. Okay. So... Um, that was the plan. So the Thane, of course, can be of any clan. Um, usually, a lot of times, it'll go from family lines and such. Uh, but occasionally, if someone dies without an heir, or was in times past when some of the clans still fought each other, um, sometimes that can change. So usually, the High Thane and their family and guards and generals and stuff like that would live in that central area. Uh, it was one. It's basically like a castle built out of one of the stalagmite combos. You know, where it comes out of the ground, thins out, and then goes to the top. So this is built throughout that. Um, and it's almost like the pillar holding this whole whole cavern uh, above them there. Uh, I apologize. We've, we've covered quite a bit already, Bragg. I don't think I'll be able to go back through all of that. But uh, they haven't really done anything yet. They've just been searching in Central Corman. They haven't really found anything yet. Just uh, some clues to maybe some things that have happened. But uh, no battles or anything of, of epic proportions that you've missed at this point. Um, okay. So, they're down there, um, and they make their way across successfully. They don't find any problems. They don't find any issues 
with one exception. At one point, as they're crossing across, there's a there's a major highway. I should I'm gonna hold it up again. There's a major highway, if you will, that circles the whole thing. So it goes all the way around the letter T, and it's kind of a main road that people would take to, to kind of travel around the cavern with branches off and such. As they were crossing over this, uh, it's a bit raised as well. As they're crossing over it, they came across a few puddles um, of some type of strange, stinky ichor. Goop would probably be the best consistency of a greenish-gray goop. Um, and when they came close to it, 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 it didn't smell bad. Kind of like that smell after lightning strikes. If you've ever been near lightning when it strikes, it's kind of got that heat and that little bit of a, that to it, burn. It's not really sulfur, but it's a stink. Um, kind of has that to it. Um, and Tobias was going to try to take a sample. As he got closer, it started to wiggle a little bit. So he stepped back. Dandy. Says, I'm going to check it. So she goes forward, didn't do anything. So Darsh, Mercy, several people tried, didn't do anything else. Seemed to be just one Tobias. So uh, Darsh managed to scoop some of it up for him, and it was no problem. He scooped up, there's no reaction. Put it inside of one of Tobias's test tubes, hands it to Tobias, and it just looks normal. Nothing's happening. So he puts it in the chest of holding. They decide he's going to take it back as a sample to see what that is. Uh, he doesn't really want to be casting spells out here in the middle of this open area at this point in case it attracted things. But they did come across a few small puddles of goop. Is that important? Who knows? But I'm not the kind of person to put something in there if it's not important. So, you know, just a heads up. They continue on and they make it to the central castle, if you will, the, the kingdom of the High Thane. Here, uh, there is an excessive amount of damage. Um, they can see that Again, doors are ripped off. Uh, parts, walls of building are smashed in. Uh, again, nothing that you would see right out that would say claw marks or anything like that. Um, but definitely something large or heavy smashed into walls and busted. They can see from the tail of the break, you know, something hit them outside. The, the rubble and the shrapnel of it is inside the room, which means something had to hit it forcefully from the outside. If it was hit from the inside, then the boulders, rock, whatever, would be laying on the ground outside. So that's an easy way to tell which direction these things are going. Hello, Patches. And uh, they, all the damage appeared to be from the outside. Uh, again, the deeper they got inside to the smaller the tunnels and looking around in the actual inner building, uh, they don't find as much issues. Most everything is on an outer edge, outer door, where clearly some type of battle went on. Um... There's no signs of any dead Sharnlings or anything of that nature. But they didn't really spend a lot of time with the Sharn and Sharnlings. Remember when the Sharn died, it kind of um, deflated. So they got to thinking, maybe they don't even have bones. So maybe, there's no, maybe it was Sharnlings, but whatever died didn't leave any kind of skeletal structure. Um, uh, bah, 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 bah. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, do you DM these sessions? Yes, I do. I, 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 I mean, I DM'd them in my living room. If you're saying, where did I? Just my living room of my old apartment where I used to live before I met my wife. That's where I did most of this. At least the area right now. Um, I usually had a dry erase board hanging up. So things like the pictures I'm showing you, I could draw them in, in pieces as we were getting to them. Because sometimes they didn't know what they were walking into. So I could draw maps. Or if they're inside of a, a building, and I say left or right, I can draw where they're going. And kind of eventually they could fill out a bit of a map that way. Um, and they got they got pretty good of 
of keeping track of maps and I would be very accurate as much as I could in the description of how long tunnels were and things so that they could do that. When? I mean, all this took place over 15 years to 20 years, uh, this section with these guys. Um, I don't remember exactly when I did this part specifically. I, I didn't date anything. But this was all well over 10 years ago. Mm, 8 to 10 years ago. I'd say the part right now. Okay. So, they finished... Oh, what else? Well, not be the game of the tutorials. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Cameron. Thank you very much for coming by and saying so. So, they find nothing of interest or nothing living in the entire Thanes Keep. They decide to spend the night there again. I walked again, it would take a couple hours to get back to the um, temple. Like, well, why waste two hours going back and two more hours in the morning? This place seems relatively secure at this point. No signs. It's all dusty. No recent footprints. Nothing like that. So they went ahead and they spent the night there. Without problems. Again, look how easy this is for them. It's barely challenging at all. Must be a very easy adventure. About that time. <laughs> the next morning they decide to leave the High Thanes Kingdom. Again, heading northeast towards the... My phone keeps shutting off and I keep losing my map. Stop shutting off. Towards the Rhaegar. And the Rhaegar happens to be the clan that the um, High Thane is actually from. And they are primarily warriors, tradesmen, and politicians. Uh, so they come from a long line of kings and so on. They've probably been the kings the longest in here. Um, but there, are, there were others. And we'll get to that. So they're making their way up to that corner to head towards the Rhaegar. They have only been about five to ten minutes out of the Thane's, I guess you'd say castle, the, this Stalegi combo that he's in. Um, we'll call it his castle. Heading that direction when suddenly they heard a noise in front of them in the darkness. At that point, they had a choice to make. They were prepared for this type of situation. Oh, hey, Patches. But the big thing is, okay... Do we negate our torch? Because if we have caught the attention of something, the torch is probably the most likely thing to have done that. But if we nix the torch, then we all have our infravision to fight with, except for uh, uh, Tobias, who can cast it on himself, uh, infravision. But then Ulrich is basically just standing there in the dark, swinging swords. Like, he has no idea what's going on. He, he wouldn't be very helpful. They decide to leave the torch on, uh, or lit, I should say, and Tobias brightens his staff to give more light area, hoping that um, whatever it is has been living in infravision, the light might, if it was a, 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 a living creature, you know, like just a regular creature, because you can imagine that. There are beasts and animals and things that live down underground in the fantasy existence. And this is a big empty cavern for a long time. Some might have just moved up in here. They may not be finding the cause of all of this. They could just be finding, like, cave bears. Or it wouldn't be a bear. But you see what I'm saying? Something that has moved in here that's natural over time. That's totally not what happened. But they had to be prepared for that. So, instead, they then hear the plodding, heavy footsteps 
of something moving towards them quickly, to which they begin to prepare for combat, as they should. Out of the darkness, bursting through, and into them is... Let me grab the name here. Uh, imagine something that's a uh, human that stands about nine feet tall with big heavy plate mail and, the, er, and our armor. And the armor, I'm sorry, scale mail, not plate mail. And it appears to be made of the scales of lizards or dragons. And in one hand, it has a big shield that's very scaled, looking very much like the shield that Darsh has. Slightly different design, but made of the same type of material. And as we all know, Darsh has a um, green dragon scale shield that he had made from the green dragon they fought many, many moons ago. In its hand, it's carrying what to anyone else, even Darsh would be a two-handed sword, but it's wielding it with one hand, this massive uh, blade that at the end of it, it gets thicker as it goes out. So it's thinner and it gets thicker and at the end it has a hook that actually hooks backwards. So not forwards. So if I'm slashing it at you, the hook's on the back but bringing it back, I could hook something or use it to pull a weapon away or something of that nature. And it's and it's and the blade is serrated. Okay, almost it, it looks super sharp, but it actually almost looks more like stone more than it does a metal of some type. It's also wearing a helmet that has like big curved, evilly looking horns on it. But in the darkness, is it is that it, are the horns part of the helmet or is it coming out of the head of this thing? They don't know because in the face of that, because again, you get, it's one of the one of the armors that kind of comes down and they got the, the nose piece where you can see the eyes are just glowing eyes of the skeletal chin of this giant undead monstrosity that is charging at them. Um, they didn't know this till later, but what they're about to fight is a lesser demon. It's uh, a generic lesser demon that I created myself. But what it looks like is an undead dragon hunter. Dragon hunters very often dress in the style of which I... Because uh, they use the spoils of what they find to make better weapons and armor. The sword is something I found somewhere special. Um, and it's way too big for even Darsh to wield effectively. And it looks like it's way too big for this thing. But this thing's moving around like it's nothing. Like it's a feather. And it just charges in and immediately attacks. So combat begins. There's not a lot of chance. They decide, of course, Ulrich immediately tosses the torch down and draws his weapons. Tobias steps back and his staff is lighting up, giving them even bigger glow. Um, and everybody prepares. Artemis and Tobias, of course, step backwards. Mercy, Darsh, Ulrich step forward. Dandy kind of hangs back a little bit with the squishies. A lot of times in the first one or two rounds of combat, Dandy will not enter into the front if she can help it because she wants to look and see what's going on. Is this something that's going to be doing so much damage that she'll get killed in one shot? It'd be silly for her to step in the front lines. Is it a, a, a beast or villain that she might have the opportunity to somehow sneak around and get behind it using one of her greatest abilities, her backstabbing? Or is it just something that that's not going to happen? It's just too big. Standing back and using ranged weapons is in her, her best nature. And that'll, that, that happens a lot. Um, but she is able to step up if someone was to fall and kind of help hold that line a little bit while maybe Artemis heals whoever fell. It's a little bit harder if Darsh is the one that falls. Dandy stepping in, who barely comes to Dar past Darsh's knees. It's hard for her to step in and fill that, that hole, but it's happened. Oh, stinky kitties. Good lord. Okay, I'm going to turn the fan on. Oof. Okay, so... Um, 
the battle comes in. The thing comes in charging, and even though they were prepared for it, the momentum of the thing just just bashes into them. Uh, Darsh is technically bigger than this guy. Not by much. His horns make him decently taller, but for overall body height, Darsh is just a smidge taller. But the thing's sword is twice the size of Darsh's weapon. Like, it's kind of like, imagine a Final Fantasy blade, which is clearly way too big for anybody to wield. You know, it's one of those huge cleaver things that you would have sitting on your shoulder until it's time to fight. And this thing's just whipping it around like it's nothing. Um, but they enter into combat. Uh, it doesn't appear to be targeting anyone specifically. Uh, if anything, as normal, Darsh is usually the one that ends up being the brunt. Because it's the biggest. You know, Darsh, if there's a bunch of people coming, Darsh is usually going to take on the biggest person first and allow the smaller ones to his friends because uh, he has a better chance that way. He's also the biggest threat, so of any intelligent thing fighting him is going to use that same strategy. If it can't get to the healer and the mage first, Darsh is the biggest thing between the healer and the mage and this monster. Uh, so Darsh is usually the wall that has to be torn down first. Darsh, for all intents and purposes, is the tank. Everybody else is a DPS, a healer. Oh my goodness. Or, yeah, it's a DPS or a healer. Um, so this battle begins. The battle itself um, lasted a lot longer than I thought it was going to. Um, as this combat happened, it didn't have a horrendous amount of, um, I could say, hit points. Uh, but it had a very, very hard-to-hit Thacko. Uh, Tha you don't know what Thacko is. We'll talk about that later. But basically, it was a hard-to-hit monster. It had a lot of armor, and uh, the armor was in very good condition, maybe even magical, to the point that it, it absorbed a lot of the damage their weapons would do. And again, with it appearing to be skeletal, even everywhere it's skeletal, piercing weapons didn't do as much damage. So that kind of nixed out uh, a lot of what Darsh's does and Dandy's uh, knives. So Dandy went back to her hoopak, which is also a staff sling, and she has her metal bullets and she has her rocks. Rocks were having no effect, so she switched to her silver bullets, which then appeared to be having an effect. And that is something in Dungeons & Dragons, very often you're fighting something, and the weapon you have isn't strong enough to hurt the thing. Depending on your DM, the DM will be like, it had no effect. I like to think if I shoot a rock at something and it hits it, I think it works. If it doesn't hurt him, I mean, a living person may fall and stumble and it's obvious, but something like this, how do you know if the rock's doing any damage till you try a few times? Um, but when she whips the silver at it, there are silver sting stones, the thing clearly seemed unhappy and tried to turn more towards her, which put Darsh... Ulrich and Mercy in a spot where now they were uh, having to defend even harder because now this thing wanted Dandy. Um, so there was that. Um, yes. So I've got four books now. So I found the maps and everything for this section. So I've got way more detail than I did before. I'm trying to make sure I don't miss any of this. Uh, yes, I found that. I found that. Okay, good. So um, the battle goes on pretty successfully. Uh, at one point... Uh, Mercy and Ulrich decide to split, because they're each on either side of Darsh at this point. Um, and they start to break off. Um, Mercy yells out a command to do that kind of thing, and Ulrich understands, because they've fought together a long time, they know this. They don't use, hey, go do this. They had pre-existing, if I yell this, do this kind of thing. And so they tried to, try to flank it a bit. Um, 
they did not believe, Dandy didn't believe her backstab was going to help much in this situation because backstab is a stab and if it doesn't have skin, stab's not going to do a whole lot. So she wasn't trying to get behind it. But Ulrich and Mercy were trying to focus its attacks because they found that with the big sword, it was able to hit sometimes more than one of them at a time. It was such a sweeping arc that it had a chance of hitting more than one person. So as they split off, now it had to focus an attack on one of them and if it turns one direction, it leaves itself a little bit more open for the other. Now, I want to say that this thing they're fighting is not a mindless undead. While it didn't speak, growled a little bit, um, it clearly understood what was going on. And as they tried to split, it actually would back up some, making it harder for them to do that. So they learned this thing was matching their strategies. It was smart. It wasn't just a, a mindless skeleton. Um... And at one point, they decided to run. It was something they decided in the moment. They were going to try to Ulrich and Mercy both to split and run that direction and force it to choose. What they didn't expect is the choice it made, which was to also run forward, directly at Darsh. So they ran past it as it surges forward, and now Darsh has the full speed of this thing coming straight at him. Um, and Darsh wasn't expecting that either. And I will let you know that in this situation, they said what they were going to do, but it won initiative. Um, and unlike what some people view initiative as, technically initiative happens all at the same time. If I say I'm going to hit you with a sword, and you say you're going to shoot a rock at that person, and that person says they're going to catch a magic spell at me, those things all go off at the same time. But if the thing that I do would affect or keep you from doing the thing that you do, that's when we have to, we have to look at where initiative comes in. So if a spellcaster is casting a spell against my friend, and I'm stabbing the spellcaster, I win initiative. I, while it's, he's doing his action, I'm a little bit faster. I'm able to stop him from finishing that spell. Um, so that's kind of how initiative works. Initiative is technically all happening at the same time. The speed is just the, uh, the speed of the effects. And so... You should be saying, this is what I'm doing on my turn. After you, you, know, you have initiative, you, can, you say that. If you don't know initiative, I should, I should step back a step. I apologize. If you've never played Dungeons & Dragons, initiative is, at the beginning of a round of combat, everybody rolls a 10-sided dice. The lowest number goes first. Or highest, depending on the version you play. But you usually choose one. And then that's the order of attack. So the monsters are going to roll initiative. So in this case, the demon. So... The attack combination could be Mercy, Dandy, Demon, Darsh, Ulrich, Tobias, Artemis. Usually spellcasters uh, are end up going last because spells take a little bit longer, most of the time, than a, just a sword swing. So spellcasters always are a little bit later, usually, in the uh, if they're doing a spell of some kind in the initiative. Is it D20s now? Plus initiative bonuses. Okay, so now it's D20s. So in the, I know they tried to convert everything to just using a 20-sided dice at this point, but in the second edition I played, it was a 10-sided dice. Um, and there were pluses and minuses based on the type of weapon you have. If you have a weapon of speed, then you get to, you're, you're faster, things of that nature. And then some things um, automatically get initiative. Like if I have an arrow knocked. I'm an archer and I have an arrow pulled back and we're walking because we think something's happening and I see somebody over there and he's charging at me with a sword. I get to shoot an arrow or two before he ever gets close enough to hit me with his sword. So that's different. If we're in melee, if we, I've come across you and you're almost in melee, if I've got the arrow knocked, 
I can usually let it go pretty quickly. It may not do the same damage up close. But that's that's where you run in, into that situation. But if someone's running at me from across the field and I've got a bow and arrow, I may shoot them five or six times before they ever get close. But that also works the other direction. I'm chasing an evil wizard who's across the field. He's got four or five spells he's shooting at me while I'm trying to get across this field to him. So that's where initiative comes in. It's who goes first in a round of combat. And how long a round lasts also depends on your DM and the version that you play. Um, some people say it's 10 seconds. I've seen 7 seconds. I've seen 1 minute. A turn is 10 rounds. A round is determined by your DM. I want to say that we did it as 7 seconds. I have it all written down. Time is... Time can be very confusing in Dungeons & Dragons. It's one of those things that, if you're not careful in monitoring how time works, realism goes out the window. I know you're thinking, what, this is fantasy. Why does realism matter? Because if I get to swing once with my sword, and you get to cast three spells, run up a hill, grab some rope, and tie it around someone's feet in the same amount of time, that just doesn't make sense in any world that we live in. Even imaginary ones. You want to try to make it so... Plus, if things like that happen, the guy who only gets to swing a sword one time, he's not going to have as much fun because everybody else is getting to do 20 things to his one thing. So you want to make sure that everybody gets to shine in their action, uh, but those actions take proximate equality. There's my DM speech for the day. <laughs> so, in this situation, blah, thing charges at Darsh. It won initiative, and it charged forward and hit him very very hard. He braced, once he saw it coming, he was able to brace himself such uh, to kind of defend a bit, but it it hit him harsh. At not even as much with the sword. The sword slash was part of it, but it barreled into him and basically sent Darsh flying. Because the thing is much, much stronger than its body would appear that it is. I've been trying to say that several different ways, but the thing is much stronger than it should be. Um... Even an undead may be a bit stronger than regular. I'm not counting vampires, but skeletons and things may be a bit stronger. But usually not by much. This thing is three to five times stronger than its body should allow it to be. Um, and it sends Darsh flat on his ass. What helps the heroes is that puts Mercy and Ulrich behind it, which gives them uh, a little bit better of an attack against its back. But now you've got Mercy and Ulrich on one side of it, you got Dandy, Tobias, and Artemis on the other. Artemis has already tried to use her turn undead ability. Because it looks like it's an undead, right? Uh, that's, an, or that's an action she can take in her round, but it doesn't use up spells or anything like that. She is able to try that. Doesn't have any effect on it at all. Does that mean that it is an undead and she's not strong enough? Or is it not an undead? She doesn't know. She only knows that she tried to turn it and the power given to her by her god was not enough to affect that. Uh, was it being enhanced by some magic? That's a thought. So they have to figure these things out. So they continue on. Now, Darsh was not knocked unconscious, but he took a big hit and was knocked down. He had to spend his next round basically getting back up again. Um, Ulrich and Mercy come charging in, hitting on the thing's back. But the thing literally let them take the hits because this opened it up the ability to go after the cleric and the mage. And Dandy, who now is standing in front of them with her little hoop pack, trying to defend them, uh, not so successfully. 
Um, the thing basically swats Dandy out of the way with his shield. So it's a big shield, and literally just bats it away, and then slashes at the two of them. Tobias jumps in front of Artemis and takes the hit, and Tobias is just deep cut right across his stomach. Blood goes everywhere, and he's and the, the force of the blow sends him backwards into Artemis, and they both go falling back down. But all Artemis sees is, in front of her, is Tobias groan, Dandy go flying, into blood, and then he's on top of her, and they go tumbling back. Um, Mercy, at this point, is frantic. Darsha's back up and charging back in, but she can't focus on that. She's worried about this. So she pulls a Dandy, and she tries to slide between the thing's legs. Uh, Dandy, who's very acrobatic, uh, and very you know, athletic in general, is good at this. Mercy in her armor is not. This is one of those situations where the two characters are played by the same person, and in their head they're like, oh, I'll do this, forgetting that me and my you know, male armor not going to slide as easily as a Kender who's half my size. So she tries to slide in as the thing turns around, and it literally just steps on her. Um, like, he sees it, and he steps on her, pinning her to the ground. And it's not like a light step. It's a huh, right on top of it. And the wind is knocked from her so much that her weapon and her shield go flying out of her hand. Um, and that's um, harsh. Very harsh. Um, let's see. Let's see. Hold on. I want to make sure I'm not missing this. Yes. Bear with me just a second. Again, I, today I've been going through books I haven't looked at in years. Um, but there's something important I need to check. Uh, going ahead. But I can talk while I'm doing it, but I may be just the tiniest bit slow. So Mercy is now pinned underneath this thing. And much like it's stronger than it should be, it's also heavier than it should be. Very, very dense. Now, the one upside to that situation for the heroes is it's trying to hold her down. It's not easy, to hold, no matter how strong you are, to hold something down. That she, it's not on balance itself. While still trying to fight against Darsh and um, Ulrich, Dandy uh, was not knocked unconscious, but the wind was knocked out of her. It, took her. it was an extra round before she could get up. Artemis had to take start healing uh, uh, Tobias. Didn't have any choice. The damage was so much, if she didn't immediately start using heals on him, he was going to die. He was going to bleed out. It was a serious wound. Um, he was knocked out from it. It took two-thirds of his life in that hit. Because mages are super squishy. So her focus is purely on keeping him alive right now. So that's just Darsh and Ulrich. And um, interestingly enough, I wrote down what Ulrich was going to do. I do that sometimes because I don't want them to think that the action that they're taking is directly affecting the thought that I'm doing. Right? I'm, an I'm playing Ulrich as a character. When I'm Ulrich in that moment, I am Ulrich. This is what I'm going to do. I know my motivations. I know who I serve, who's important, and what my abilities are. I'm going to do these things. But as a DM, I have to separate that from what I know about the monster and its weaknesses and so on. So a lot of times I'll say, okay, real quick, I'm going to write down what Ulrich does. Fold it in half, set it down. What's everybody going to do in this round? This is what Ulrich does. 
I say that because in this situation it mattered. Uh, I do that with a lot of NPCs, but this is one of those rare situations where it literally made a difference. Um, because, <laughs> because what happened was, is Darsh said, at this point, Darsh has an ability called Charge. Uh, Minotaurs have this. It's basically a bull move. He charges, he can use his horns or just his body. Uh, he can use his horns as a weapon. Darsh technically has a bite attack too. Minotaurs have that. There's a bite attack, hit attack, and then there's a charge attack. If he charge attacks, he loses his bite attack and his other attacks. It's just charge. And his, at this point, no matter how big or heavy it was, he needed to get it off Mercy. So he just goes and charges the thing with the attempt to try to football tackle this thing and knock it off of Mercy. Artemis is healing Tobias. Tobias is bleeding. That's what he did this round. Uh, Dandy was trying to regain. She was stunned for 1d4 rounds, according to my paper here. It was three rounds that she was stunned for. She was hit so hard and sent a good flying a distance. Because uh, she was stunned so much so that she couldn't use her natural tumble ability to uh, brace her fall, which is something that she has. Uh, but yeah, he's bleeding. That's what he did. <laughs> so, in that moment, Darsh decides to charge full stream ahead with his strength, and Darsh is strong. Darsh has a couple magic items, and Darsh has had some spell and things that have happened to him over the years that he is stronger than the average Minotaur. There are only a few Minotaurs out there that could potentially rock his world. Uh, the the Emperor of Coromon, or of, of uh, Kronear, the Minotaur Emperor, would rock his world in a while. Darsh might hold his own for a bit, but he's going to win. And the other one would be Taborik, the one-armed Minotaur that works for uh, King Fireman. Um, even though he's got one arm, doesn't matter. He could probably still take Darsh. He's stronger than Darsh. So I should, I should put it that way. These two Minotaurs are physically stronger than Darsh. But Darsh is unusually strong because of the different things that have happened to him. And some of that I've left out, but different things that have happened. Uh, give me one second here. Got it. Okay. I had to test something. I've been trying to find it all day, and I just found it in the paper as we were reading. And I needed to know this for the story because I couldn't remember something. But it's for later, but I just found it, so that's important. So, they're attacking. I then pull out Ulrich's paper and pull it up, and Ulrich had decided to charge. He does not have a charge ability, but for his attack, his thought was, I have to get this thing off of Mercy. I'm going to charge and tackle it. So... Darsh and Ulrich, coming from slightly different directions, are both charging this thing with the intent of slam-tackling it. Uh, a glomp, for those of you who've been around on the internet for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and Darsh has initiative. He's faster. Remember he has that charge ability? Remember we talked about that? He had his boots that lets him shoot forward, but if he trips or something, he's in trouble. He's got those boots of charging. And so he uses them in this situation to win initiative. That's a perk of the boots. This is going back to initiative. He has something that lets him go first in this situation. The boots wouldn't help him in every situation. The thing's still too far away for him to get there in his, with his boost. But in this situation, he does. But Ulrich doesn't know that's what he's going to do. So Ulrich is running full steam with a tackle as well. So Darsh, with his 358-pound body... Busting into body tackle into this thing with the speed boost is enough to tackle it over. I said it's much heavier, but he manages to tackle it over. And it he and it basically go off of Mercy, tumbling into the ground. A few seconds later, you see Ulrich go, 
right over top of Mercy, missing, and just face planting into the rock ground. Because you're going to be like, smack, woo! Like he just charged the thing, and then suddenly Darsh came from the side, and it was gone, and he's in midair, and nothing's there. Um, luckily, he had enough momentum, he didn't land on Mercy, but Mercy's on the ground, barely break. Finally, the thing, I'm better, all of a sudden, whew, thing just goes flying over her head. He took some damage. Not going to low or lie. Uruk rolled very low. But now Darsh and this thing are on the ground wrestling. Um, and it's stronger than Darsh. And it's heavier than Darsh. They don't have their weapons. All, both of their weapons and shield have gone from their hands at this point. And the thing has managed to get on top of Darsh. And it's just squeezing his throat to the point that Darsh can't breathe. And it's only going to take one round or two at the very, very most to completely break his neck. Um... And he's trying to roll a strength check to try to break out of it. So he could attack, but in his, he's trying to use his strength to break. Because he has that chance. He has a roll for that. He's trying to break its strength to be stronger in that moment. Um, and he tried that, and he failed. Um, so, in that next moment, as it's Shogo and Darsh is trying that again, the thing just flumps down on him. After a large thump and crunch, um, Mercy, because I haven't mentioned one thing here, was trying to get up. There's one person I've left out of this battle. Because this person was trying to help where they could, but this is really out of Cole's league. But even the party forgot Cole was there. But in this situation, Cole jumped on the thing's back, and with his two short swords, stabbed it into the uh, shoulders and into the neck of the thing. Um, and remember, it's wearing armor. It looks skeletal, but it does, in fact, have some substance under that armor. And as it goes in, he hears it crunching through things, and the thing kind of starts to fall sideways because it's in pain. It's not dead. But it rolls over, and suddenly coals underneath of it because it rolls to get up on its feet and try to get what's on its back. As you can imagine, someone's on your back, and you have the ability to throw yourself backwards. Cole takes a good squish. But he managed to jump on the back of this thing long enough to, to get its attention. Darsh is still struggling to breathe. He's still on the ground. But Mercy's up now. And Mercy comes running in. Um, and this thing had squished Cole. And then it was able to sit up. This uh, Is Cole one of the squish? No, Cole is the dwarven guide. Remember? Cole is a little two short sword wielding uh, guide. Uh, yeah, I have his picture. Hang on. This is Cole. This is their dwarven guide that is leading them through here. He's part of the Ventoy clan. Um, so he's a little guy, got a little bit of mass to himself. Uh, but yeah, that's Cole. You're welcome. So, Cole squish. The thing, after squishing Cole, sits up to get its weapons. And as it sits up in that exact same moment, Mercy's coming at it with her morning star baseball bat style and it's the thing nine feet tall standing up it's four foot tall sitting down it's basically t-ball if you've ever heard of t-ball it's what kids play before baseball there's a stick you set the ball on it and the kid just hits the ball off the top of the stick because throwing the ball at him is just too hard at that age uh, mercy hits this thing with such force that its head comes clear off of the body <laughs> she rolled very well 
And it, literally you hear a snap as it separates from the vertebrae of its neck. And the head... And then the body falls backwards, squishing Cole again. Uh, but it wasn't as forceful this time, so it doesn't hurt him that much. Um, but the thing basically stops moving once its head separates. Uh, Dandy, at this point, runs over to the head just to check, and the eyes are no longer glowing, so she bonks it with her hoopack a couple times, and then golf puts that thing further into the darkness just in case. Um, just... Um, but they manage to get Cole out from underneath of there. They lug him out. Um, but this one battle took a lot out of these guys. It's really the first fight since the Sharn, and it hurt them more than the Sharn did. Um, so it gets them thinking, was this the thing? And as they're thinking more and more about it, their thoughts are, this can't be the thing. That thing sucked to have to fight. But we didn't use a lot of magic on it. This thing has taken out hundreds, if not thousands, of dwarves, whatever's happened in here. There's no way that thing, even as strong as it is, ripped off that metal door on the um, temple and caused the damage and the amount of death that's been seen. Now, if this thing and all the Sharnlings were there, the Sharnlings could definitely account for a lot of the, the dead, but neither this thing nor the Sharnlings, or even the Sharn, uh, would probably be able to rip that door off. So these are the clues that they're putting together to try to figure out, okay, are we done? Or is there still something down here? They believe there's still something down here. And because I didn't say you've won the adventure or you get experience now, they pretty much assumed that's what happened. I don't give experience out after every fight. I usually give experience out in the early days. I give experience out every couple of, of play sessions when you get to the end of a section or something. Um, but as people get to the level of these characters, I normally don't give them experience until the end of the adventure. And a lot of the times, um, I don't even math it out. I'm like, everybody gets a half a level. Because when you're level 10, half a level is a lot of experience. Well, again, in second edition. But I was very lucky that my players didn't care about, about that as much. Getting an extra spell here and there, an extra ability is nice. They were here for the story and the fun of it. They were not power gamers at all. And I struggle playing Dungeons & Dragons with power gamers um, and usually will not play D&D with them very long. It's just not uh, my kind of play style. But they were successful. <laughs> this thing had no magic items of value. The shield was well done, and the shield was um, large, a little bit larger than Darsh's, but Darsh could feasibly use the shield. The sword is just too big. None of them could use that. But they did take the sword, the shield, and it was barely the size enough to fit it inside the chest of holding. Because that is a problem. You know, the chest of holding does is the size of a regular pirate chest. If the thing's too big for it, you can't put it in there, no matter how much room's inside. But this, they were able to bend it, and yes, I let them say it would fit inside. So Darsh intends to take that back and hang it up more as a trophy than anything else. Um, and it wasn't magical in nature. Tobias checked it once he was conscious. Uh, so it was going to hang up more on like a wall, like I fought this thing once. Uh, and tackled it. Ulrich's okay, although Ulrich's a little embarrassed at this point. Um, that his attempt to save Mercy was so, so poorly executed. Um, and then she ended up saving the day. It kind of weighs a little bit more on his head, that whole, man, I'm not pulling my weight around here. Um, and he, while still being the funny, friendly person, good companion, does start to be a little bit quieter and a little bit more 
set apart. Like he 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 he's starting. You, they could start to feel that he felt like he wasn't pulling his weight here. Um, and you know, Mercy is trying to, hey, you did great there, kind of thing. You know, and and she knows she can tell what's going on just by the way that he's acting. Um, and she tries to let him know that he is of value, um, but he's not real. He's not really really happy with that. But this they fought. As I said, out in the middle after they left, right after they left the uh, Thane's main priority, um, and as weak as they are, they determined decided they're going to go back in and spend the entire day in there because Artemis used a whole lot of her healing spells uh, in or in this situation. Tobias didn't use as many of his spells; what few he used weren't that effective. Um, so he they decided to go back in and rest because Tobias is still weak before they move into another cave, because there could be more of those things out there, and now they know they're out there, they can be better, better prepared. And hello, Chaos Gamer. Thank you for coming by. So they rest, they relax, they do keep guards, but at no point do they see any other signs of movement or threats of any kind while they're in there. They spend the night, the next day they're out again. This hurts, because I'm keeping an active calendar. They have 365 days to do this quest. I've made it quite clear that the choices they make will affect the amount of time that they have. So, straight up, I mean, I'm keeping it. They know that. Every time they say, I'm going to camp for the day, that's a day they're losing. Um, because I wanted to make sure that that was uh, the, the importance of the, of the time frame, the timeline uh, was a priority that they had these quests. So if there's side quests they want to do or they come across a cool treasure map, do you want to waste five days going after a treasure map? That might be the difference between saving Michael. You know. Uh, milestone XP. Yeah. That's how in the early in the early levels, yes. Early levels it'll be based on um, usually at the end of each minor adventure or chapter. Um, or every two to three sessions if it's a longer one. Um, but then the it, once you get to a high enough level that you're normally not going to level up in one single um, adventure. Then I start to say, I'll give it out at the end of the adventure. Hello, Patches. Don't wave your butt at the camera. Uh, stinky giggy. So, yes. In that situation, they uh, make it through the next day. They rest successfully. And they're all basically healed up, ready to go when the next day rolls around. I'm kidding. Uh, when it happens, you level up type of thing. Uh, kind of. Like I said, it's, it's more of a, at the uh, I'll pick a day to say, this is the day I'm giving out. So maybe they're like, okay, we're going to stop in this town and rest for a week. Okay, that's the time I'm going to give out experience. You know, it could be something along those lines. And I give experience out for playing your class. A rogue picking locks gets experience. A, a mage identifying a magic item that gets experience. You know what I mean? There's things that you can gain experience for, not just killing. In fact, I'll give more experience if you can manage to defeat something without killing it, if keeping it alive is a benefit to you. So they make their way the next day past where they fought that battle, being very careful while they're out in the open. And in this situation, they determine it might be better to go slower so they are not using a torch. In this situation, Ulrich is basically walking blind. Um, if there is a situation where uh, anything threatening does pop up, Tobias is immediately going to light up his staff. Um, but he's not... They're not going to do the torch because they're afraid that might have been what drew their attention last time. The first torch to go walking through this area in 200 years. So, um, all right, Turtle. So they uh, they managed to, and Ulrich, they have to go a bit slower because 
Ulrich is basically just holding on to the person in front of him. Um, so they're walking along. And in this situation, Mercy's darting the back, so it's Artemis. It's normal that he's walking with. So again, they head up to the uh, northeast to go and continue looking at the Rygar section. And they enter into that, that area. And this one is different than the last section. This one, again, while there's still signs of defense, um, there are signs that they attempted to at least try to close the doors. Uh, the doors, one door is closed, the other one is partway closed. There's no damage done to the door, uh, but the bodies and the uh, broken swords and weapons and this and that and banners and flags and, and, and wagons of people trying to flee, it's clear that they were trying to defend the door to get people out. Which again, you got to remember, that's a, that's an, it's a hard thing because these dwarves have built their home in a way of defending. We can block up this door and you are not getting in in most situations, is the whole plan. So for them trying to get their people out means they believe the threat is too strong to basically siege themselves up into their into their clans. Um, and, again, like I've mentioned, there are a lot of people living in businesses and homes and towns throughout this cavern that aren't into these actual clan caverns. So they may have been trying to get people inside. It may not have been where they were trying to get people out, these wagons can be people they're trying to bring inside. They may be trying to save as many as they can. But whatever happened, they never got the second door closed before something tore them apart. They spend another entire day in this section, clearing, looking through their signs of bodies and such as normal, uh, you know, of, of damage. But once they get into the homes and the things of that nature, they don't find uh, very many uh, bodies. They find a few, right? Because, you know, you can imagine something got in there. But there's no damages to doorways. So whatever was getting into the building to kill the people inside there had to be small enough to fit through the door, dwarven doorways. Darsh could do it, but he'd have to crawl sideways in some of these doors. Some of them he can just crouch in, depending on the... If it's a business, it normally has a bigger door. Private home is going to have a smaller. So sometimes he's, he would have to climb through. So it would have to be something distinctly smaller. And the Sharnlings would be a perfect example of what things would fit through the doors. Because they themselves were not much... Uh, smaller than a dwarf. But they search this entire area. They find a few things of value. Treasure, some things you could find in homes that would be considered treasure and stuff. Um, but with Cole, they agree that, again, they're not taking the treasure for themselves, but if Cole says, yes, this is an heirloom of, uh, I can tell by looking at this, this would be an heirloom somebody would want to have. They pack it up put it down in the chest of holding with the pure intention of giving it to the high thane when they get back out of here so that he can try to get it to the to the owners and cole a lot of times can say okay we got it in this house in this clan in this district to try to help narrow down who genuinely owns this thing maybe it's an old sword that's just sitting there it could be a cool sword but maybe it's more of an heirloom or an axe or a hammer or an old set of armor they don't take a lot of the set of armor that takes up a lot of space but you know things of that nature if they come across a potion of healing they're going to use the potion of healing I'm sure the dwarves would be like, we would rather you drink the potion of healing and live to defeat our enemies than not to drink it and then die and then we don't get the potion of healing anyways. So, there's that. But they searched this whole thing. They didn't find anything of any real value to them, uh, like clues or anything of that nature. Uh, but they did find a couple, excuse me, heirlooms and such that they are they've packed up to take back with them. Again, they decide to spend the night here. They don't want to spend the night out in the open area, especially now that they fought that big undeady skeleton thing. Was it an undead? They still don't know. The answer is no, it's not. But I'm just saying. So, 
Um, they spend the night there, and then the next day they are going to go south, and they are going to be going to the Caban. Now, the Caban uh, are merchants, warriors, and tradesmen. So this, this is a clan that, again, has um, warriors, as they have a lot of warriors. So it's going to have more soldiers and such in it than some of the other clans. Uh, the other one they were just in, uh, which is the Rygar, was warriors, tradesmen, and politics. Or politicians, right? So these are two areas where there'd be a lot of very well-trained warriors. And there's a lot of... Every dwarf is a well-trained warrior, really, when you think about it. Um, but more professional would be there. Hello, Cosmic. So they make their way into that compound. And it takes them a while to get there. Uh, again, because they're traveling slower and they're traveling without their torch. And when they come across it, they decide to, to get to the gates. And this one, the gates are open. It looks like they may have tried to close at one point. It's hard to tell. They're, they're like just slightly closed. Um, but again, there are bodies and such everywhere. Armor pieces, busted weapons. And as they check a lot of the bodies, you'll find here's a skeleton, but then the arm of the skeleton's over there. The head's over there. Legs are, you know, it's not always just sitting in one spot. Some of these things were torn apart at one point, either while they were alive or something came back through here later and scattered the bones. But this area is very dusty. They're not finding a lot of things that would imply that something has moved through here recently. Um, but again, they didn't find any signs earlier and had to fight the skeleton thingy. So you never know. So they make their way inside. And let's see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So they go in there and they begin searching. Um, as I described earlier, they have the same kind of pattern. Dandy and Cole will go in first. Dandy looking for traps. Cole looking for anything out of the usual Dandy may not pick up on. Are there any kinds of ghosts in D&D, like wraiths or something of that nature? There are probably about 60 to 80 different types of ghosts. Yes. From ghosts to banshees to specters to whites to wraiths. They all exist in Dungeons & Dragons. Yes. Uh, there are even more types of undead that are not ghosts. From skeletons to liches to... Um, what else in there? Um, there's just so many. I have... I'll give you an example here. So I have the Dungeon Master Guide, right? I have a monster manual that's twice this size. I have six binders of monster sheets, because 2nd edition first put them out as that. And then I have all but one of the additional compendiums of monsters. And these are just books of monsters. That's all this is. Monsters with telling you about them, their stats, and how they fight. Um, so I spend a lot of time reading these when I'm writing an adventure... Because I'll determine what the what the theme of that is. Are they fight? Are they going into an undead dungeon? I need to find undead. You fight a lot of undead in Dungeons and Dragons, and I'll tell you why. Because you cannot go into a lost dungeon that no one's been in in two hundred years and find living creatures, unless, like I said earlier, a living creature happened to sneak in there or find its way up. You're gonna if there's gonna be any type of threat, it, uh, threat it's got to be either undead, some type of automated machine or trap. Right? That's it. Those are the things that could survive in there for hundreds of years. And, you know, not need sandwiches. Uh, was an actual name for that monster earlier, or was that made for this specific encounter? The one that we just made, I made myself. It is a lesser demon. Uh, there demons, of course, there are many types of demons throughout the game. You can find many of them. Patches is sitting right on my book because she doesn't want me to read to you guys. Um, but there are many different types of demons. This one is just one that I, uh, myself, I kind of based it physically on an undead dragon hunter. 
Um, you may be, or Dungeon Dragon Slayer, you may be able to find a picture of that. I took kind of the physical of that, made it larger, and gave it some special abilities. Uh, Drizzler for 500 years. That's true. But if you're walking through a dungeon and every three feet you might be setting off a trap, dwarves aren't wandering around and they're having fun. You know, I mean, it's just not like that. If you're if you're going into a place where people live, you're going to know that pretty easy. Um, and a lot of dungeons and things may have monsters in them. And it doesn't mean that it's a lost dungeon. But if you find, an, uh, like some of these guys, when they find a, a pyramid that you have to find a path just to get it open to get inside and it hasn't been opened in 500 years, you're probably not going to come across a lot of people who've been living in there. At least not for long. Hey, Katie. All right. So they are in there. And as I was saying, those go, Dandy and Cole will go in first, uh, followed by usually Mercy and Artemis and Tobias. Um, Ulrich and Darsh stay outside to protect uh, because in this situation, uh, they are using a torch when they get in here. As much as they don't like to do that, they can't just leave Darsh and Ulrich outside without letting Ulrich being able to see something. He has that gem of brightness. Uh, they gave it to him to carry, so if it's an, um, an emergency, he can really bring the lights on. But he has to tell them, because if he does the blinding thing, it's going to blind all of them except for Mercy. Because Mercy's thing, again, she doesn't have infravision. We've talked about that. She has dark seeing, which means she can see into it just like daylight. It, to her, there's no transition. Uh, when she sleeps... In the real world, she doesn't normally wear it. She doesn't wear it all the time when she's just hanging out in Serenity, but she does not leave Serenity without it. So, they've been searching the place for several hours at this point, um, and they haven't really found much extra. But then, about that time, something happened. Didn't it, Patches? Yeah. Everybody gonna die. I always like to say that. When I'm playing the D&D... I'll be like, I'll be like, ah, oh, yes, this is the part where everybody dies. <laughs> the girl's like, oh, no, don't say that. I'm like, I'm just saying, this is the part I wrote it where everybody dies. I never write it in the intention of killing everybody, uh, but I do write it where it's possible. So they manage <laughs> to catch the attention of something. And it is exact that situation they greatly feared. While Darsh and Ulrich were outside, while they're inside searching at this point, it was some type of a uh, storefront of some kind. Uh, looking for clues. Because they didn't search every building. You can't. Hundreds, if not maybe a thousand homes. But they're searching the things on the outer edges. Things closest to the door. Signs where the, maybe this door looks like it was broken. Or maybe it was big enough that something nasty could be living in there. A small little house they're not as worried about. Um, but a lot of times, Dar still can't fit into them, so he hangs, up out, hangs out outside. So, in this situation, while they're there... They're just kind of talking a little bit and just saying, no, me either. You know, they're chatting a bit. They're just still being quiet, but, you know, every so often, like, everything okay in there? Yeah, we're good. Okay. You know, because if something happens in there, they need to be aware of it as well. Um, but around that time period, which is another way of saying about that time, something decided to pay a visit. And I have a picture. I just have to find it. I went through the guides today and I found some of the ones with pictures so I could show you exactly what it is I'm talking about. Um, not that one. This. So, the creature... Oh, I'm sorry, Katie. The creature... Oh, not as worried about smaller houses when we've established that whatever it is in smaller can fit through. Well, yes. I mean, that's why they're being careful to go in there, but there's just too many houses to check. Like, especially up in the, the things. So they're doing their best. 
And sometimes they purposefully, well, once they get in there, they actually have sometimes decided to make some noise to try to attract things. Um, because if something is in there, they'd rather, you know, call it out on their uh, side. Which wasn't a bad idea. Um, you know, fortunately, they did not use any strings and bells uh, in this situation. But, you know. So, as Darsh and Ulrich are kind of chilling outside, watching and being careful... Something literally drops down directly in front of them and attacks. I rolled, and they were it was successfully able to uh, surprise them. If you can surprise your enemies, you get a free round before initiative happens. You get a round to do something, and then everybody rolls initiative. There are magic items and some creatures with abilities where you cannot surprise them. Uh, magic items that will give you a chance to not be surprised. Darsh and Ulrich did not have any of these. So when this creature drops down in front and immediately slashes at Ulrich, uh, they were caught unawares. This is what they found. Let's see if I can get the picture up here. Not the squid. This thing. That guy right there. You see that thing with the ears? Okay. This is called uh, a Uridizu. And a Uridizu, um, which is, in its language, rat fiend. Okay, rat fiend. Picture that. Um, hails from a is a type of creature. I'm going to name that creature, uh, and some of you may know what this is, and some of you may not. Uh, if you don't, you're in trouble. Have you ever heard the term Tanari? This is a lesser Tanari. I'll explain what that means after the battle. But the battle initiates. And this thing lands. It's about six feet tall, although it is slightly hunched. Okay? It's lunch, but it does have a claw-claw bite attack. And it's very strong, and its claws are very sharp. And it would rip through most armors at some point. So when it slashes Ulrich, it literally gashes him really badly slash slash but it does not hit the bite and the thing go and, and he just goes flying backwards against the wall and then the thing turns on Darsh and literally jumps up on him that's what his attack is it wanted it jumps up on him while Darsh is trying to get because Darsh is again big this thing's smaller than him but it just jumps on him and then begins to try to bite him on the neck uh, his shield Darsh's shield this thing could not break through that the dragon scales too strong his claws as strong as they are can't go through that um I'm going to explain a little bit more about it here in a few minutes, uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, there's a reason I'm not yet. What a Tanari is. We're going to cover that, I promise. Um, hang on, I lost my page. There it is, okay. The, my little fan blew it closed, okay. So, immediately, Darsh and Ulrich are calling out everybody in the house, Cole, Dandy, Artemis, Mercy... Tobias, five of them, immediately come bolting out, but this is all happening right in front of them in the doorway. There's no way for them to get out. Darsh is basically standing in front of the door, screaming at stuff, and Ulrich, who took a big hit, is getting up and is draws his weapons, and he's coming at it. Now, this thing is biting at Darsh, and it just starts gnawing on his neck. Darsh, luckily, with his fur 
and with the armor he strap the leather straps he wears help took a bit of the brunt of that but it bites through the straps that holds his um magical quiver i told you he has a, a quiver like an arrow quiver but it's like a, a bag of holding he has javelins in it he hasn't needed the javelins he's not you don't he doesn't rarely use them he's got several regular javelins and one javelin of lightning left he's used a couple of those before he found three one time um, but he has one of those left in there but this the straps holding it aren't part of it, so the straps aren't magical. It breaks the straps. That falls off, as well as his axe, which was strapped to his back. And it's just gnawing, and blood starts coming out. Darsh, without anything... his Because his weapon falls, as does his shield at this point. He can't stab at himself. So he drops that and just... flims it off of himself. That's his thing. And as he does it, he's he can feel the teeth ripping out of his skin and the claws on his shoulders ripping out as he flings this thing away from him. And then stumbles a bit to the side because it, it that was that was shocking. It was a bunch of stuff. And Mercy and them start piling out as well. Now this thing, which at first looked like, hey, just a weird rat creature, lands, but as he's it's flung off, it kind of flips backwards, but it lands square on its feet and it stands up. It's got those legs where the knee is backwards. You know what I'm talking about? A lot, a lot of creatures have those, the backwards knee. So, you know, like that. Um, but it has, they can see, very leathery looking, almost like a, a kilt-like thing on it and straps. And it reaches in and it pulls out two swords and just comes charging in again. And as it does, you... They start to hear the squeaking. So the squeaking begins, kind of from all around. But this thing comes charging in with its two swords. It, much like Ulrich, is wielding two scimitars. And uh, it just charges in, and it is fast. It's almost as fast as Darsh's when he's doing his burst speed. Uh, anyone else think a Merge Worlds movie would be awesome? I do. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever. I don't think I'll ever get to see that. But my God, if I could actually sit down with somebody and help design this for me, I wouldn't want a movie. I would want something like an HBO show, like a Game of Thrones, where I could do all these stories and, and build onto it. Where it wouldn't be because I don't think I could cram all this into a two-hour, three-hour movie. You know what I mean? But to have a TV series, even an animated series would be awesome. An animated series, you can run as long as people like it. It's a little bit harder with TV series because people age. That's why so many people are elves and live long times. It's not like I was thinking ahead to that or anything. <laughs> but he whips it off. This thing comes charging in fast, and it's quick. And it gets several attacks per round, as do they do. I do it in animated. It's a lot easier to do monsters and special effects animated than you could do it with this. But if you had like a, a good, like, animation studio, cartoon, like, like Rooster Teeth. Say Rooster Teeth does their Ruby and stuff. They whip out here and they want to do a Merge Worlds thing. That would be sweet. Um, but yes. Um, so yes, yeah, so they, uh, this this happens. The charging and the fighting and the, and the poop and the doom. Poop and doom is a phrase that I use very much when bad things are happening. You, you're about to experience all the poop and doom. Um, so uh, at, when we were playing the game, very often uh, Dungeons & Dragons to us, we didn't call it Dungeons & Dragons. We just called it Doom. I can't wait to play Doom this weekend. You ready for some Doom? Poop and Doom. Excellent. There will be plenty of poop and extra Doom. These were conversations we would have throughout the week getting ready. But uh, poop and Doom. So this thing starts attacking and, and everybody's trying to fight where they can. But uh, you guys may have met, heard that I mentioned squeaking a moment. Um, 
within two rounds, because they get two rounds of fighting against this thing, uh, and it is very hard to hit. Uh, it's not well armored, but it's very fast. And it's so fast that, uh, and they're kind of against pinned against buildings at this point. You know, they're not in a, they're like in a, a small, they're like not an alleyway, but they're in between buildings. They don't have a lot of room to, to branch out here. But this thing can hit, attack one and then switch attacks to different people because it's so quick. It's not losing any of its attacks by switching targets because it's just that quick. It gets its full attacks every time. Uh, it's also, for the record, uh, never surprised and immune to sleep and cold base spells. Uh, and it has to require magical weapons to hit. This is the issue. This is the issue. Ulrich has one magical scimitar. The other scimitar, not that good. Uh, so he's only half of his attacks are, are damaging. But again, a lot of times you don't know that. You know, when you're fighting against something, and I cut its skin and I keep going, I'm not noticing that it didn't cut the skin or the skin immediately healed because it just can't do anything. It's just going at it, you know? So eventually you'll be like, okay, listen, I've stabbed you 20 times with this and it's not doing anything. I need another weapon, you know? But... Ulrich's not doing as much damage. Everybody else has magical weapons. Um, and as close as they are, Dandy uh, snags, grabs her daggers, and everybody's in melee, except for Artemis and uh, Tobias, who are just basically kind of pressed up against the um, wall behind these guys being protected. There's no room for them to stand back and try to cast any real spells. Uh, did I just pronounce the C in Scimitar? Of course I pronounced the C in Scimitar. I always, I respect every letter. Some people have a problem with that. I will stab them with scissors or my knife, whichever they prefer. Um, but yes, I call it a scimitar. I know some people say scimitar. I think scimitar sounds better. So yes, I pronounce the C in scimitar. I've been mocked for that. You want to know, I'm going to tell you real quick, this, 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 along the same lines, uh, a, a minor embarrassing D&D &D story. You ever see a word and you look at the spelling, and so you pronounce it in your head. You've never heard it, but you've read it. And you've pronounced a name or a word in your head the same way so many times that when you finally hear it, you don't recognize that as the word in your head. And you may have heard it a million times, but you don't realize that's the word. There is a magic spell, at least in second edition, that's a cleric spell, um, that allows you to create a, basically a, a, a temporary magical stick that you can hit things with. Um, it, 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 that's a good example, throw. And it is called a shillelagh. Which many people uh, have probably heard at some point in their life. Uh, I believe it's an Irish term, but it's like a stick with a crook on the end. And it's all the leprechauns and the little cartoons and stuff always have them. But it's called shillelagh. I did not know the spelling of shillelagh, for after playing Dungeons & Dragons for 15 years, I always called that spell shillyag. And I did not know anybody. And so, the few people I, the people I taught to play D&D didn't know any better, so they called it shillyag. When I started playing with this group, they said, I'm going to cast shillelagh, and I'm looking, I don't, I don't have that. Do you mean shillyag? And they, they, I got some crap for that for a little while, because I'd been saying shillelagh wrong for about 15 years. A lot. Just a thing. So they're fighting the Iridizu, and it's going on. And it is going very, very quick. The They managed to, Darsh and Mercy especially, are managing to do some pretty decent hits to it. It's fast, and it's hard to hit, but when they do hit, they do a pretty chunk of damage with their weapons. 
The problem is that after two rounds of this, when they feel they're starting to get upper hand, suddenly they the rats begin to swarm. Uh, small rats, big rats, even a few giant rats um, start coming out of the darkness and out of the buildings, uh, almost like summoned by this, what was the word, rat fiend? Um, and now it's rat fiend. It's, it's literally a rat demon. Yeah, it's called a rat fiend. Viridizu is a rat fiend. Uh, so it is uh, controls rats and vermin. So suddenly hundreds of rats start spawning. And now they're having to deal with that. Mercy and Darsh are trying to focus on the rat fiend while everybody else, including now Ulrich, are trying to attack the rats because the rats are swarming the casters. It's like they've been targeted because they were. But these are regular rats, and that's something that Ulrich can stab. And so now he's defending them, and he's just slashing things. Is that an individual demon or like a species? It is a... Uh, rat fiends are a type of uh, Tanari. They're a lesser Tanari. So now I'll explain what a Tanari is. So a Tanari is a type of demon from the Outer Plains. Um, they are some of, if not the strongest of all the demons. Um, anything big and monstrous that is demonic in D&D is usually a Tanari. Uh, there are a couple other types of um, things that are not Tanari, but they basically live on one plane. And in Dungeons & Dragons, when you go out to the plains, the, 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 all the different levels of hells, which there are many, there's always wars going on between demons for power and for control. It's constant. It's been going on since the dawn of time, going to go on until the end of time. Tanari is one of the big forces. Um, and some of the more powerful ones. So a lesser Tanari is still a lot harder than a regular boss you're going to fight. But at this point, these characters are high enough and strong enough that they can take on some of these things. Um, but the name Tanari, uh, for most people who've been playing D&D for a long time, uh, will know that that's a word you don't want to hear. It's not the worst word. There's only one word you never want to hear in combat. But Tanari is a word you don't want to hear. Just like Lich. You don't want to hear Lich if you can help it. Um, but this thing is fighting. So now we got two-thirds of the party are fighting rats, which are swarming. Um, at this point, Tobias is casting uh, Flaming Hands, which is a cone, or, or like flame spell. It shoots out a cone of flame, and he's just burning rats like crazy. Um, the word you never want to hear? Tarask. There's only one Tarask. And you cannot kill it. You can only hurt it enough that it goes to sleep for another hundred years. But a Tarask is the nasty. So, which, I've never unleashed a Tarask. Okay, I did it joking one time, but it wasn't really a Tarask. Yeah, Tarask is just one thing you don't ever want to mess with. Uh, by the way, one of the other demon races like Tanari is the Yugoloth. Yugoloth also have lesser and higher and greater and so on and so forth. Yeah, the Tarask is not the thing you want to see. <laughs> so, they're fighting this rat demon, and the rats are an issue. Um, Artemis, a, a Tarask? Yeah, I can give you. Uh, it's T-A... I want to see it's T-A-R-R-A-S-Q-U-E. I believe that's correct. There may only be one... Yeah, Tarask, because it's not Tarask. T-A-R-R-A-S-Q-U-E. If I'm correct, I may be off by a letter. I haven't had to write it in a while, and Patches is sitting on that book, so I can't get it. Um, but it's a big one. Yes, that's the spelling. Thank you very much. I believe that is correct. 
If it doesn't find anything, uh, try and eat. Uh, but yes, so they're fighting against it. The rats are nipping at Artemis and Dandy and all that kind of stuff, uh, and they're taking some damage. Uh, and Mercy and Darsh are really going against this thing, which is fast. Um, it's zipping back and forth so quickly um, that there is an increased chance that Mercy and Darsh may even hit each other. Because again, they're in close quarters. Uh, Darsh had picked up, he had not picked up his sword and shield at this point, he, or his axe that had fallen. He just drew another sword. Darsh carries like 80 weapons. Uh, but he, he pulls out his other sword, and they uh, it's not as powerful as the one he normally uses, but it still works on this thing. And they're stabbing it. And finally, they get to a point where they're missing it so much. And it's not doing as much damage to them, but it's overall it's it's hurting them more and more than they're getting to do to it. Um, that Darsh decides to, once again, do something stupid. Well, you know, it actually worked out this time. But he decides to drop his sword and attempt to grab it. Um, his thought was, if he can grab it, then maybe Mercy can stab it. Or something. Um, because they just had a hard time snagging it down. And he manages to grab the thing and he gets it into a bear hug. Well, it's strong. But it's not really able to do much with its swords. So it drops the swords and he can just feel it ripping at his back and sides with those talons. As he No, he, his sword and shield fell from his hands when the thing jumped on him at the beginning. They fell. And he didn't have time to stop, go get them and pick them back up. He just drew another sword because he was in combat the whole time. So he drops his other, the one sword he's wearing and grabs onto it. I'm assuming you played D&D after everyone had a day of work. No, we played every Sunday. It was a day that we dedicated just to this where we all had a day off. And uh, back then, they didn't drink and I rarely drank. So no, we didn't have any alcohol. This was just us being idiots. Uh, but he gets it in a bear hug and it's facing him. So you can imagine it's chewing at his chest again. And its claws, well, even though it's pinned, are just ripping and slashing at his sides. And he's yelling, stab it. Now Mercy's looking at it, and she's like, but if I stab it, I'm going to stab him. And that's what she said. If I he's like, stab it! So she does. And she stabs it. Uh, tries to go on an angle, and she does most of the damage to it, but she does snag Darsh a little bit, an in-and-out wound kind of on the side. Uh, but it was enough to, to make it scream. It wasn't enough to kill it, but it did slow it down. And at that point, Darsh is squeezing it, and he can feel it starting to crack a little bit. And it's just screeching in an unintelligible voice. And then the rats start to swarm them. Now, Mercy's having to turn, because she's she her Morningstar's back in her hand. Or, I don't know, she's stuck with a sword there. Because slashing was easier than squishing rats, if I remember correctly. Remember, she can just drop her Morningstar, and it'll pop back into her hand when she wants. So she drew a sword, and she's trying to slash at these rats, because most of the little ones are there. Most of the giant rats and big rats, Ulrich and them have already taken care of. It's mostly just the hundreds, if not thousands, of small rats that are attacking at this point. Um, but they're going in against that. And Dandy manages to separate from that group and comes over at this point to try to help Darsh and Mercy. Um, Ulrich is defending the squishies, and, and so is Cole. Um, Dandy was helping, but at this point she thinks she may be better off over here. Because Dandy literally says to me, I've got, we got to kill the big thing. Because if we kill the big things, then these little rats may go away. So she comes running over, and Darsh is doing this bear hug thing as they're being mauled. Right? We know that. And he's holding this thing. 
and it's chewing on him and slashing at him, and his legs are getting bitten and chewed, and he's just sitting there trying to hold it while Mercy's trying to help, but she's also being swarmed. Dandy comes running in, and she just sees Darsh holding this thing, and she's staring at this creature's back. Dandy pulls out her strongest dagger, which I think at this point was a silver dagger plus three, which was a pretty powerful dagger. She had a couple other daggers. She had an acid dagger that when you pull it out of the sheath, it would actually, you could put it against metal and it would just melt through it. Um, but it never hurt her as long as she held the, the handle of it. She had a couple cool uh, daggers like that, but she had the silver ones were the big one. And she pulls it out and she comes in and she backstabs it in the back of the neck where Darsh's hands aren't and just... Right where, because that's one of the things that, that's basically the thought behind backstabs. A rogue does more damage backstabbing because you don't know the hit is coming. And they're trained to know where to stab you in the back to do the most damage. As an assassin or as a rogue, I know where to stab you to kill you in one hit or to do the most amount of damage. It's a rogue who's going to walk up and slit you across the hamstring so you can't walk anymore. A warrior is just trying to stab you and club you. I'm not saying they don't know how to do that, but a rogue is going to sneak up behind you, slit the back of your legs, and now those tendons are cut, and you're just going to fall down. You cannot walk anymore. That's a rogue ability. So coming up from behind and knowing exactly where in the... I'm seeing its skeletal structure. It looks relatively... That's a head, that's a neck. I would need to stab here. And as it does, sure enough, the thing screams and starts to shiver, and she's just turning that thing. and Because it was, it was, she had to force it in, and it didn't come out real easy. She goes, I just start twisting it. And the thing's screaming, and it's clawing at Darsh more, and Darsh's like, kill it! Kill it! Kill it! And she's like, I'm trying! It's taking a minute! And she's stabbing at it, she pulls out another dagger. But that first one did the most amount of damage, that first stab. Um, and sure enough, the thing is more powerful enough uh, uh, it automatically teleports to her hand. As long as she's wearing the ring, there's a ring on it and there's a ring on her morning star. And the ring on the weapon will change sizes with the command word and it'll wrap around it. So you can do it an axe, you can do it a sword, you can do a flask of liquor. You can put it on almost anything and whatever you put it on will teleport to your hand. But it will not work on a living thing. You can't put it around your kid and teleport that to your hand. That wouldn't work. But the morning star, yes, it just teleports to her hand at any distance. That's why when she was in... Um, Oromon in the thing, Ulrich give her, her her ring, she put it on her finger, and she teleports it all the way from Serenity. Pops right into her hand immediately. She starts cracking skulls. But sure enough, Dandy did the lion's share of the work with the actual killing there. She did a lot of damage. And it's screaming. At that point, it stops. It's now trying to get away. And the rats are all running all over the place. Um, and things like, uh, what about through a separate dimension? It's basically a teleport. It's a teleport. That's, that's all I ever put into that. Um, it wasn't any more thought to another dimension. It just teleports there. But they managed to kill this thing. And they get it down and they're stabbing it. And the rats are now not attacking them. It's just they're kind of milling around, not knowing what to do. Because this thing is not able to control it. It's in too much pain. And sure enough, they're able to kill it. And once they do, the rats, they're still... A couple of them are still jerks. And they got to squish a few. But overall, the rats start to dissipate and run. Because... That's what you would do, right? Something big slabbing at you, you run away. Um, so they managed to do that. They managed to basically kill uh, this lesser demon. Now, this was a lesser demon Tanari. The thing they fought that looked like an undead was not an undead. It was a demon. Just pointing this out. Just saying that this happened. Uh, but yes, they managed to defeat the Iridizu. 
And after they kill it, its body doesn't stay there. The body literally dissipates and goes away. But everything it was wearing did not. And that is important. Because at this point, they start to look at the weapons and the stuff that was behind it. They're checking it out. And I, I, I spoke a uh, mistake earlier. It was not wielding two scimitars. It was wielding two swords. One of them was a scimitar. Um, they managed to... It also had magic resistance. That was another thing. Uh, but they were able to uh, cast some uh, spells to find out what magic items they are. Tobias has that ability to cast Identify to find out what a magic item is. Um, and they find out that it is a scimitar plus three frost brand and a longsword of the plains plus one. Now, I know a lot of times I don't go into the specifics about magical items and things, um, but these are relatively power, uh, powerful. So I wanted to uh, let you know kind of what those do. Some of you, again, may already know uh, because you're just so smart. Such smarty pants. Um, but yes, let me grab my weapons. This is where the Dungeon Master Guide comes in. It tells you all the cool stuff. Uh, here we go. So, uh, Sword of the Plains. Uh, this magical weapon has a base bonus of plus one to attack. So it counts as a plus one weapon. That's it. It's a plus one sword. But on any of the inner planes, it becomes a plus two. Um, and it's also a plus two on the Prime Material Plane which is where everybody lives, in theory, uh, unless it's against something that's from another plane. Uh, the further out you get in the outer planes, the more the stronger the sword gets. So it's a weapon that's intended to, to be used on the different outer planes of existence, where all the different demons and angels and the gods and all that kind of stuff live. Uh, that's the big one. That's a very cool sword. And it's going to matter a lot. Because this, this plane... Because remember, they're not on a planet. They're on a plane of existence that was created by Omniana. It is still a prime material plane, but it is a separate plane of existence that now exists among the outer planes. So it's not just a world floating around. It's a magical plane. So that, that's important uh, because some of the things that are on merged worlds count as outer planar creatures. That sword will have bigger bonuses. Uh, the other sword I said was a frost brand. Uh, provides a plus three donut. Oh, no, that's not the brand. That's, that's not it. Uh, I had it here. That was a sword of the plains. Giant slayer. Ah, here we go. Uh, so frost brand. Um, uh, protects. Um, Provides a plus three bonus uh, versus... It's a plus three sword, but plus six versus fire-using or fire-dwelling creatures. Uh, gives a bonus. Uh, does not shed any... It doesn't shine any light, except when the air temperature is below zero degrees. Then it will glow. Um, uh, the wielder is protected as if he's wearing a ring of frost resistance, or fire resistance. Uh, also, has a 50% chance of extinguishing any fire into which its blade is thrust in a 10-foot radius. So if he stuck that sword in a wall of flames, the wall of flames has a chance of going out. Um, it being a scimitar, they decided to give that to um, Ulrich. Because Ulrich's really the only one in the group that uses a scimitar. And as I mentioned, he had a scimitar plus one or plus two, but his other one was just a regular scimitar. So giving him this gave him 
a plus three sword, which is on par for what a lot of these guys are running for their weapons here. Um, so that's pretty impressive. Giving a plus three sword is a pretty strong weapon. So now that weapon would definitely work against more powerful creatures, which I think we all know are coming. So that that sword did benefit him. And it's a, these are swords, weapons you would very likely find on a creature from another plane because it would wield the sword of the planes because it's way more useful where it comes from. So that was it. And then they found, I think there was a... Was there anything else in there? Nope, that was everything. Oh, and a dagger plus one. That was it. A dagger plus one. And I think they gave it to Cole or something like that. Because he didn't have any magic weapons. He wasn't helpful against the big stuff in many of the situations. His swords that he shoved in, um, they work as a plus one weapon because they're enchanted that way because they're um, artifact, antique weapons which have their own whole side buff. So it can count as a plus one in specific situations. Very confusing. Um, but they managed to successfully defeat uh, the Rat Fiend. And the Rat Fiend uh, dissipates and goes away. Except for his loot and clothing and such that he's wearing. Uh, news is for a chair because you're... <laughs> yeah, my, my chair that I sit on here while I'm streaming broke a week or so ago. So I'm sitting in an old desk chair that I happen to have around the house. Um, and sitting here streaming for hours is pretty uncomfortable at this point. I'm sitting like two pillows and a cushion. It doesn't help. Uh, so I was talking about that and somebody said I should use that as the, desk, as the donation goal. And a couple other people were like, yes, I think that's a good idea. So that's what we did. <laughs> because it, it, after sitting here for 10 hours doing my job and then streaming, it's, I'm in a little, a little pain by the end of the evening. Welcome back, McMac. Oh, we still got 30 minutes. So much more doom before you guys. So much more doom. So they don't find... The rats all dissipate. or They disappear, but the demon dissipates and he's gone. No body left. And they're like, okay, well, that wasn't fun. Um, and again, they have to find a safe place to camp for the... They spend the rest of the night searching for anything else. But now they're much more careful about splitting up. Uh, already more than halfway to... <laughs> That's true. Yeah, people have been overwhelmingly um, charitable. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but yes, yeah, so the uh, they're like, okay, they find a place to hole up for the night where everybody can kind of be inside. Again, they find a building with a big enough space for Darsh to be in there comfortably. And they rest. Um, they make it through the night without any issues. It was overwhelmingly successful. So... As that uh, section ends, they've now finished searching that cavern. Um, and at this point, they've not found anything that could just explain everything. You know what I mean? That rat demon, if it could summon thousands of rats, that could probably take out a lot of dwarves and could get to places where other things could. So, I mean, it could, you know, that's, that's a doable. You know, that, now they're like, okay, well, that could have had a major effect. Still wasn't strong enough to rip the door off of the temple, but definitely sending the rats in to smaller homes and stuff could explain some of the damage and things, uh, the people, some of the people dying in the darkness. And if they're, you know, imagine innocence and not knowing you're in bed and all of a sudden rats start swarming you in the middle of the night. Because again, this happened at night in Dwarvenland. Um, so, you know, that... So again, they're, they're trying to, they're, as the more things they're coming across and the more damage they find, they're able to put down pieces together uh, about, of what more might have happened to cause this. Um, the big question they have is, what else is down here? 
right? How did this stuff get here? And the big question is, why are things of this nature here together? The Sharn would not normally be running around with a rat fiend. These are things that don't, you know, for what little the mages and such know, I mean, they can piece together what some of these creatures are. Tobias is familiar with the rat fiend. A um, little upset he wasn't able to get any parts from it for spellcasting. But he explains that with many demons, you can't kill them on the prime material plane. You can only kill them on their plane. When you kill them on the prime material plane, they just go home. And very often that means they're banished. They can't return to the prime material plane uh, for a period of time. Depending on the demon, it can be more or less. Um, so he explains that by killing the rat demon, what they really did was just send it home. So it's no longer on this plane, which counts as a prime material plane. It's not the prime material plane, but it has the effects and design of a prime material plane mixed with a little bit of extra chaos and order. They decide at this point, the next day, we have now searched pretty much all the areas. We've killed a couple big things, but we still haven't found what we believe to be the source of this problem. And we've searched all the prime areas here. I think we are going to have to go down to Lower Corman. I think the fact that there is a Lower Corman would probably imply to all of you we all knew they were going to get down there eventually. I'm not predictable all the time, but that's pretty much a given. Wouldn't build a Lower Corman if they're going to find the problem in Middle Corman. So they decide that they're going to have to go down to Lower Corman. So the next day, after they've risen, eaten, done their stuff, they're all healed up now, feeling pretty good. They start making their way to the... Um... Hey, Big Mac, thank you very much. That is very appreciated. Thank you so much. Awesome. <laughs> I keep up the great work. I will do my best for you. <laughs> Big Mac Playhouse. So many awesome Big Mac names, dude. I love that. All right, so, <laughs> so they, uh, they're uh, rumbling along there, and they start making their way to... Um... Woadin's Fist, which is the gate that leads to Lower Corman. So Lower Corman has only one way to get down to it. Um, again, with one gate that is shut behind them, would in theory keep everything from getting down there. It would also keep everybody down there, down there. That's not necessarily a bad thing. These are dwarves that have everything from farms to food to water supply. There's plenty of stuff to live. They can live for generations without ever coming back up. It was built that way specifically to be able to defend if they need to. Um, and they've yet to go near that gate. They don't know if it's open or not, but they know that's where they have to head to. So they start making their way down. The main highway that we talked about earlier uh, that circles all the way around is the quickest way to get there. So they make their way back to the main highway and begin to head south to um, Woden's Fist. As they're traveling along that road, they've been traveling for a couple hours, and Cole tells them that uh, as a young dwarf, or, or as a young dwarf, he heard tales and saw many maps of this area. He's never been here himself, but he knows this area like the back of his hand. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason he's the guy that comes in here. He knew everything there was about Upper Corman. He's learned more and more about the other areas because he's always dreamed of being able to get down here and be able to get more stuff and bring it back out, or like every dwarf, be the hero that saves Corman. Um, but he says the gate, uh, they haven't seen it yet, but when they get there, hopefully 
it will be open because if it's not, he does not know a way to get in there. Uh, because there isn't one. If there was, it wouldn't be that secure, would it? The Thane had implied there may be one, but only the Thane knew it. So, you know, stress. So, they're traveling along this main highway. And they're, oh, maybe a couple hours into their trip. Uh, maybe about 30, 40 minutes from the gate. When all of a sudden, about that time, something is coming towards them on the highway. They are not using the lights. Ulrich's going blind at this point. But Artemis and Mercy... Mercy sees it first, but then Artemis very soon after. She's got the, the best dark vision. Cole right after that. Uh, Dandy and Darsh's are like 30-foot vision. Not that hot. you got to be pretty close for them to see it. But Mercy gets the best look at it, and it's disgusting. This thing that is, for lack of a word, sliding across the ground. I got a picture. <laughs> Not that one. I got a different picture. Sliding across the ground towards them is an abomination. That's not the type of creature it is. It just, it is. I will describe it. It is a mound. It resembles a large cone-shaped mound of yellow and brown sludge that glistens with moisture. A greenish, brownish, greenish, grayish, sludgy kind of thing. Remember those puddles? Uh, glistening with moisture, crowned with a withered, eyeless human head. Two heavy arm-like appendages hang near the top of the mound. It exudes a distinctive tang of ozone, like that of a lightning strike during a rainstorm, crossed with the essence of citric acid. Something like a rotten electric grapefruit is the description it gives. Stop. So this... I gotta hang on. I'm gonna show it to you, but I gotta cover up the name because I don't want you to know what it's called yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to show you the picture. Can you see it? Yeah, that one right there. This guy on the, not not the spider one, but the the big lumpy thing. Okay. So it starts coming at them. Why? Because. You'll 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 understand in a minute. Uh, this thing is coming because they don't know what it is, and neither do you. This thing is coming at them, and they're not quite sure what it is. But they're like, okay, it's coming. As soon as it realizes that they could tell when it's noticed them, because now it's coming faster, and it's not running. It's sliming like a slug across the ground, with a little slut butt, and it's leaving some of that green slimy stuff. Not a lot. It's mostly sticking to its body. So it's not dripping off a lot. It's staying on him. It's kind of almost like a lubricant that it uses to move across the ground. But occasionally, if it snags something relatively sharp, a little bit of it might be scraped off. Where they found a little bit of a puddle. Puddle and sharp edge. It scraped a little bit of it off. But this thing is coming. The other picture was a were spider, which is a pretty cool creature. Um, so... <laughs> says, very, very spooky. I try. <laughs> so this thing is coming. So I need to explain to you exactly how this happened. Hey! <laughs> Thank you very much, Big Mac. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Woo, we're getting closer all the time. Thank you. Ah, I appreciate you coming to hang out with us, too. Uh, I always like to see 
new folks popping in on the Merge Worlds thing. I'm hoping, hoping people enjoy it. So, um, yes. This was one of my favorite fights that... Uh, Non-boss fight. This is one of my favorite fights that these things have ever, ever... Uh, these guys have ever come across for fun. Because I've been saving this for a special occasion. So, Darsh, Mercy, Ulrich, like normal, along with Cole, kind of take the forefront. They're at the front of this. The two Squishies and Dandy are in the back. And Darsh and them, they're ready to attack, right? They're not going to use anything ranged yet because they don't know what it can do. But, because it's a distance away, they have the ability to do a ranged attack if they want to. Dandy decides not to throw any of her daggers, because as far away as it is at this point, she probably won't get it. But, Tobias decides to cast Magic Missile. I've talked about Magic Missiles. Level 1 spell, one of the most common spells that mages use... Because it shoots a bolt of energy from your finger and it will automatically hit whatever you want. There's no rolling to hit. If you can see it, it's going to hit it. And as you level up, it can shoot two or three, four, up to five, depending on how high a level you are. But in the early days, you can do one. At this point, Tobias can do three. And he decides, I'm going to go ahead and use this opportunity to do a little bit of damage ahead of time to this thing. To try to help out, because when he gets close, he may have to do other spells. At the same time, Artemis decides to cast the Bless spell. She does this quite often in combat, although I don't bring it up very often, because it's not normally important. But Bless spell gives her people the blessing from her god and such, uh, that can help give them a little bit of a perk against some magical things, and also can let them do uh, a little bit better chance to hit things. So they're basically inspired and such, have a little bit better accuracy. A common spell to use before a battle when you have a bunch of people that may be going up against some tough stuff. So here's how this happens. Because no one's in melee combat, the casters get to automatically cast their spells. There's no initiative needed. Artemis casts her Bless spell at the same time that Tobias unleashes his magic missiles. Which, again... Never miss. And as they zip through the darkness, striking this creature, the magic almost like it just dissipates when it hits it. And as soon as the spells are cast, the creature lets out this huge, long, gurgling moan out of that eyeless mouth. And the thing starts bursting forward twice as fast as it was before. It's at this point that Tobias, with his low in provision, can actually see effectively what this thing is. And all they hear him say is, by the gods, oh gods, no. This creature is called the Mage Doom. I'd been saving it for a very special occasion. Mage Dooms will always target magic users first. Drastically so. And will seek them out in all combat. Always a mage first, then a cleric, 
than anything else that can cast spells, bards and so on. Uh, and then also, unlike every other situation, it's completely immune to magic and magic weapons. But you see, they run into melee combat. Tobias finally recognizes what it is, but they've already jumped in and are attacking with their first round. Everybody with their nice, shiny magic weapons. And none of it does a thing. It's called a Mage Doom. Again, I will show you the picture. Uh, not, not that. This, uh, this one. That is a Mage Doom. Man, I'm sucking at this picture here. The, the thing on this side. There it is. That is a Mage Doom. Big, lumpy thingamabobber. Uh, it's, again, I'll quickly just... Uh, a cone-shaped mound of yellow and brown sludge that glistens with moisture crowned with a withered, eyeless human head. Stands approximately eight feet tall. Has two attacks. Club, club, with these big appendage things that hang off it. And it's quick. It's also lawful evil, in case anybody was wondering. It is also intelligent. And it starts bursting forward. Well, Darsh... Not... So he char he doesn't charge with his charge boots, but they all charge in and they start to attack the thing. Um, and nobody effectively does any damage except for the little bit done by Cole, who, as I mentioned, technically is not using a magical weapon. Uh, it can have a plus one against specific things because of its blessings and such, but it won't actually uh, count as a magic weapon in this situation. So as it attacks it, it does a little bit of slashing, but again, he it's like slashing a a thick, chubby jello mold covered in goop. Um, that's not pleasurable to touch and very stinky. Again, the description was, because I liked it so much, a rotten electric grapefruit. I love it when they put that in there. They do such a good job of describing. Just reading one of these is fun, but if you're not a DM, I don't recommend doing it because you can ruin DM's fun if you know how everything works ahead of time. I've had that frustration. Um... So it starts swinging its heavy club-like appendages for 3d8 hit points of damage. So I haven't talked about that yet, but how Dungeons & Dragons works is you have a whole bunch of different dices. Four-sided, six, eight, ten, twelve, and twenty. Those are the current common ones, although I have 30, 34, 100, 2. There's a lot of other ones you can get. But 3d8 damage means that if I successfully hit you, I roll an eight-sided dice three times and add them together, and that's how much damage I can do. So the lowest I could roll is three, which would be rolling one three times. The highest I could roll is 24, rolling eight four times. Or eight three times, I'm sorry. So it's 3d8. So if you roll 3d8, 46, 2d4, Magic Missile does 1d4 plus one per missile. So I roll 1d4, and whatever I roll, I get to add one to it. So it can do two to five. So that's how that works. A lot of times when you're looking in the, the guides here, it'll say, like in this situation, each club does 3d8 damage. Sometimes it'll just say it can do 3 to 24 damage, which is the same thing as 3d8. It just depends on the version of book that comes out. How smart do you think it is, not asking Draven, since you could probably trick with a silent image? Um, it actually says, intelligence is average, 8 to 10. So average human intelligence. And that's another good thing. Most of these things will tell you how intelligent something is. So, it comes in, and now it's just hog crazy. And it is rushing, trying to just burst through Darsh and Mercy to get to the mage. He uh, yells out, 
Tobias yells out, Magic can't hurt it. Put your weapons away. I mean, obviously not all your weapons. Because they have to hit it with something. You can't just punch it. Um, but most of them have at least one or two non-magical weapons. Darsh, like I said, is a walking armory. Mercy's a mini walking armory. Um, but uh, Dandy is also really good. Because while she has all of her magic daggers and silver daggers, and some other planes creatures, a uh, silver dagger counts as a plus one weapon. It is also technically not a plus one weapon. It's a magical dagger. So, or not a magical dagger. So she can still use a lot of those daggers if she needs to. So she starts whipping anything that's non-magical. Her silver bullets from the sling will also work. Um, Tobias has completely got nothing to do. Not a thing he can do to help in this situation. Not a spell he can cast is going to do anything but make this thing angrier. And there's a chance that it will just automatically destroy the spell as it's being cast if it's close enough. It almost like negating magic spells as well. Um, so this is happening. But what it yells to Artemis is, don't let it touch you. And everybody's like, don't let it touch us. He's like, it can touch you. It can't touch us. He doesn't have time to explain why, but they're like, okay. Uh, what about haste? Is that destroyed? This, Darsh's charge? No. Uh, that's a magic item that isn't being used against the creature. Uh, that's something that's casting on Darsh specifically, and it's not a spell. It's an ability of something he's wearing. So as long as it's not targeting the creature, if he was using a magical sword to stab it, or he had a, a dagger of finding, which exists, you can throw it and hit what you want, um, or he had a wand that he was casting a spell out of that, he's still targeting something. So if you're targeting it, it's immune to it. If you're casting a fireball, which is an area of effect, it just catches everything on fire in an area, usually, it, depending on the power of the creature, if it's immune to magic, it still won't affect it, or it only takes half damage because of its immunity. So... Whether something targets a creature or not has a huge, huge effect on what it actually happens in that situation. So there's that. Um, so yes, they this battle attacks. So Dandy is in one of the better spots here. She's got a lot of ranged things she can do. They don't do a ton of damage, but it all works. So she is doing that. Whipping out her... her she used her daggers first. When her, when her non-magical daggers are gone, she switches to her silver spells, uh, stones. Artemis can still cast heals. There's a chance that they'll be blocked, but because it's a cleric spell, a less of a chance. Because that's actually a spell directly given to you by your god, uh, but it still can have a chance of interrupting it. Mages, unless you're an ungodly powerful mage, you're in some trouble. Tobias is in some trouble. So, this is what's going on. So, Darsh... At this point, he has one battle axe. She has two strapped on his back. One of them's magical, one of them's not. The other one he has because it was just a really big one and he liked the way it looked. He designed it out. He's had it since early in the adventures. They took it from something they killed and he liked it. So he still has that axe. So he has a battle axe. Uh, Mercy has daggers. That's it. Her sword she's carrying, she carries two swords and her morning star. And all of those are magical. So she just has a couple daggers. She had a one dagger that's a plus one and two regular daggers in her boot. So she pulls out the boot daggers because she doesn't know what else to do. So she starts trying to come in and at daggers. That You do not want to be using daggers 
is something that has this kind of reach. And very quickly, it just clubs her across the head and she goes flying. Darsh still has his axe and he's big, so he's holding it up here. Um, and Ulrich still has his one good scimitar. He didn't throw it away. Still has the one non-magic scimitar, so he switches to that and he has a sh he, he's, he's fighting like that. Hello, Patches. It's not treat time yet, sweetie. What time is it? 10.20. Oh, this is going to work out perfectly. So they're fighting this Mage Doom and it is just pushing through like Darsh is, is backing up in this fight as much because it's just clubbing and it doesn't care if it's taking a hit when he does happen to do damage it's not trying to block it's just focusing on damage and trying to hit which that's that's a hard opponent to fight when the opponent doesn't care you know hurting someone and making them stumble back or have to defend themselves is one of the best bonuses you have as an attacker when you're fighting I do damage now you have to try to protect yourself but this isn't it's taking the damage and just clubbing at things Mercy manages to get back up and rush in. Cole throws her one of his short swords. She can use this without negatives. She's trained in short swords. She has a point in that. But she, she's not, she doesn't have any pluses with that because she's not specialized in that weapon. But at least gives her something to do. And she starts attacking. Um, Darsh is doing, again, the lion's share of damage along with Dandy. Because Dandy's silver stones... Uh, while they're just regular stones, she has pretty good accuracy with ranged weapons at this point. Uh, and she and, and she does adequate damage. And hers, she can fire, I think it's two a round. So she's whipping two of these things that do like 1d4 plus 1 every round. So it's wiggling at it. Um, as Darsh is taking hits, Artemis is trying to throw a spell. But every time she does, it just enrages the Mage Doom more. And at one point on its head... This long tentacle thing just kind of comes out of the, the slime above the human head. And on the end of it is like a giant eyeball. And it's looking and such. And it keeps looking at Artemis and, and Tobias. And then it goes back in. And the Mage Doom then tries pushing past Darsh again. The reason Tobias is yelling, don't touch it. Because it has a magic drain ability. If it touches a mage, it drains a level from him. Not permanently but inasmuch to the spells that it can cast. So if he can cast level 4 spells, level 3 spells, level 2 spells, he now loses the ability to cast level 4 spells. And it takes an hour to gain one of those levels back. Gets hit again, now he loses level 3, then level 2. It negates the spells. And he can still sh cast spells. He just can't target them. So he can cast some things, like he might be able to summon something and attack it or have it summon a familiar and have that happen. You know, things like that. Something to help his allies. Um, but he can't do anything, any magical energy or force he puts against it either does no damage and runs a better chance of getting returned to him. Because there's a tiny chance the spell can be rebounded. Put your back going. So, as they're fighting at this thing, the thing has a ton of hit points. And it's just uh, our clerics and paladins. Clerics are... The order of importance to it is always goes at mages first, then clerics, then anything else that can cast spells, which is your bards, some rogues, and uh, paladins, things of that nature. Uh, sorry, but did you say tomorrow at 8 p.m. you were doing a Sky Factory 4 stream? Uh, it'll be tomorrow at 6 p.m. Uh, Mondays is 6 p.m. stream, and I don't mind you asking, that's fine. Mm -hmm. 6 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, I'll have that posted up in the morning. So this fight is going on, and they're chewing, chopping, slashing, kicking. Um... Dandy isn't going to try to get behind this thing. It's too big. It's got a big slug butt. Climbing up its back, it's going to know she's coming. It's not, And this isn't a creature that has a traditional body structure where she'd be able to do anything of, of usage. You can't backstab a dragon. You can't backstab a mage doom. Some things just can't be backstabbed. Um, but 
she is uh, she's still doing decent damage. Eventually, it gets to the point where um, Cole is knocked unconscious, and Mercy grabs his other sword, and now she's wielding his two swords, and Darsh still has his axe. He had to drop his sword, or, or sorry, shield, because his is a two-handed battle axe. He doesn't use the one-handed kinds. He only has the two-handed. So he's using a two-handed axe, and he's doing some chopping at it. Um, but finally, it bursts through. And it's uh, running straight at, like, running as a slug would run, but moving quickly towards um, Artemis and um, Merce, or Artemis and uh, Tobias. Especially Tobias. And it can have a surge of speed. Something it can do. It's an ability. And it bursts through. And so Dandy does the only thing she can think of is she grabs her hoopack. Because I believe I, her hoopack is magical. But she doesn't know what else to do. So she basically puts it on the ground and kind of holds up the spike end because it's got a metal spike at one end. The thing runs right into it because it doesn't care. And while it doesn't hurt it, it sticks it. It's stuck. It can't move forward. This, it's literally jammed against this thing. And it just comes down with both of those hands and clubs Dandy on both sides of her. Now as that's happening, Ulrich, Darsh, and Mercy are behind it. And they all get to do some serious attacks at that point. And they chop it up pretty rough from behind. Um, so much so that it it has to forget about Tobias for a moment and turn on this threat to itself. And it turns, but and Dandy just falls over because she's unconscious at this point. But it just these things, and of course it turns around and the hoopack's still sticking out of its out of its stomach at this point. And they attack it again even more so. Um, Artemis wanted to call her lions. Remember, she has her lions. They're still magical creatures. Their claws and their teeth count as magical attacks. She didn't call them out earlier against the rat fiend because it was a limited space and they could have tripped out the heroes. She'd like to pull it here, but it won't help. So Artemis has got nothing to do except try to throw a ranged heal at Dandy. She can't get close enough to heal her because it's right behind the slug butt of the Mage Doom. And if she gets too close, it may draw the attention on her. But she can throw a heal. Right? So you normally can't do this in Dungeons Dragons. This is something I do differently. You can cast a spell at range instead of laying on hands for half, half the heal. Laying on hands does full healing. But throw a heal, you can do a partial healing. So whips that out there. So Dandy is not dead. She's still unconscious. The battle continues... At this point, it becomes just a chopping thing, and the Mage Doom is clubbing at them and does a decent amount of damage to them. But finally, they manage to chop off like one of those clubbed arms, and they're able to. Cl and uh, I think it was Ulrich that actually beheads the thing, the human head, which isn't really the head. That's when the tentacle with the eye came out, and it's coming down because that, if it touches, that's what touches a mage or a cleric, drains. And once that came out, when the human head was gone, that's when Mercy is able to cut that, and that's what kills the Mage Doom. It, it, it was a very long fight of taking more damage than they were giving, and Artemis throwing what heals she has. But by the end of this fight, they are exhausted. They're all injured in some way or another, with the exception of the two squishies, who managed not to take physical damage there. Um, Mer Dandy is like at three hit points. She's like 
completely. She's out. She's she's got a shoulder dislocated. She's got like cracked sh- neck thing. Artemis has to use every healing spell she has left on Dandy to get her healed to the point that it's not going to be permanent damage, which means nobody else gets any healing because she has to use it all on Dandy. So after this Mage Doom is finally dead, and it has no treasure, nothing of value, just important life lessons, um, they have to try to then start crawling their way to that gate, hoping it's open in case there's something else walking around here that heard that battle. Um, And so Darsh is carrying Dandy. They're not even screwing with lights at the, with, with the dark stuff at this point. Uh, Ulrich has the gem of brightness out, which is just as bright of, as Tobias' staff. They're both lighting it up, and they're trying to go as quickly as they can, as injured and such as they all are. Cole was conscious again, uh, but he was also pretty hurt up. And they managed to struggle the other 45 minutes, normally, now it's an hour and 15 minutes, to get to that gate, Woden's fist, which would then take it down to uh, take them down to lower. And they reach the gate, and the gate is open. There is clearly remnants of a great battle here. There are more broken bodies and weapons and bones in this area than in any other location they've found. And the great gate is half closed. But it's not closed all the way. It comes down. Uh, But it's only half-closed. And they don't know why. But they managed to... It's I mean, it's a big gate. Even Darsh can walk under the half-closed gate without touching. But they very quietly move through into the dark path. And this is a slightly uh, wider road than the other one they were in, tunnel going down, because there's only one, right? There's one going down, but it's wider than the ones. And they make their way into the gate, and looking back at the, behind them, they hope they've left everything behind there, but they can't help but wonder if that's what happened to us in there, what are we going to find in Lower Corman? And yes, that is where we're going to stop. <laughs> so, this adventure has been very different for our PCs, because they're used to fighting, oh, 10 goblins, 15 hobgoblins, 3 giants. They're not dealing with that this time. They're fighting with usually one really big bad thing. The Sharnlings were tough, and the rats were annoying, um, but it's one big chunk after chunk that they're fighting. Uh, doing the character making on Discord. Pro. Uh, eventually, like I said, I'm, I'm not at that point. I don't even know who's going to be in the first group yet or when that's going to be. I honestly haven't started planning that yet. Um, it'll be hopefully soon, but I, I don't know exactly when. Uh, but yes, they've had to fight a large fight. And each each one of these things has really done damage to at least one, if not more than one of them. Uh, and none of them are healed. Even with Artemis's heels, Darsh is missing fur where it clawed at his neck and on his side. You know, it, 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 She doesn't have enough heels to heal them all back to 100% every day. So she's healing all the major wounds, but it's going to be rough. You know what I mean? Uh, But yeah, that's where we're going to stop because we did the second. Now next week, we'll do Lower Corman. And you can imagine that when we played these, um, it took one to two play sessions per level of the city as well. Because those were, we usually played eight to ten hours a session. And 
Of course, they were at, the combat takes a lot longer when you're actually playing it, right? Uh, how many episodes of this adventures are left? Well, I'll tell you, Greg. Um, of this storyline, the Save Michael adventure storyline, uh, we're not even a quarter of the way through yet. Because I like that stuff. <laughs> and then after that, there's more chapters. Said we, I would say we're at, if not slightly past, the halfway point of all of the merged worlds that's on paper at this point. Um, not counting the horrendous amount that's in my head that I'm starting to put on paper already to carry on the next set of the story that we never actually played in D&D, but I've already known for years what was going to happen. Um, so I've been working on it a very long time. But I had a lot of fun sharing my story with you guys again today. I appreciate that you came by and hung out with us. Um, and it was fun sharing my story. Uh, again, next week uh, is Merge World. Next Sunday is Merge Worlds as well. That's the that's the third week of Merge Worlds. So after next week, it'll be a uh, the next Sunday after that is um, members stream. So we take the one every fourth week is a members only stream. Um, one of the membership perks, uh, and so that is a, a, a week off of um, Merge Worlds. So we got one more Merge Worlds week before that, um, and uh, I'm pretty excited because uh, this next week, I don't know if we'll finish Corman, but we'll get some serious Corman action. I'm very excited. Like I said, I've oh, I've really, really been happy with this section of the story. Uh, of, I've said this many times, but the. The Mike Save Michael storyline is probably, as a whole, my favorite storyline that I've put in all of this. Kind of, maybe, we'll see. Uh, that we actually played, anyways. Um, and we're not even to the part that's my favorite yet. But I did want to tell you guys this. So I've been promising now for a while that I would share with you guys my Merged Worlds playlist. Um... I have done that today. I posted it on the Discord channel in the Merge Worlds thread. I also posted it on my Instagram and the Merge Worlds Instagram. Uh, there are 14 songs on there. They're the primary songs. There was other, there were other stuff that I listened to as well. But the primary music that I listened to when I wrote a lot of this stuff is on there. Um, and some of the things that have happened and will happen were directly inspired by some of the lyrics in some of these songs. There are two songs in particular that are important to two very, very key moments. One of them in this adventure, uh, and one of them in the storyline that takes place after the Michael adventure. So, uh, if you're interested in hearing some of the music that I listened to that inspired me to write a lot of this stuff... Um, I would recommend checking that out on the Discord. If you're not a member of the Discord, go to onlydraven.com, button at the top. You'll also find uh, the, the Instagrams I talked about. I'm going to post it on Twitter as well. Uh, I just didn't get to that. Big Mac, man, Big Mac. Thank you. <laughs> That's the third one. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. That is uh, that is very charitable of you. I, I, I thank you so much uh, for the donation. I thank all of you for hanging out and donating and being members and being followers and subscribers and let me tell my story it means a lot and i like that today was not as bad of a cliffhanger that is correct um uh, we'll see about next week 
Hmm. Next week, I think we're gonna have a we're gonna have a lot of fun. I'm really excited about next week. But that said, uh, if you ha- if you do listen to the Merge Worlds playlist, um, you may feel free to ask if you're interested. Uh, if any, if if a certain song is based around a character, some songs to me are like the. Uh, how many already played episodes? Of, I have no way to tell you, Greg. Like I said, we're about halfway through. I've been doing this. This is what episode thirty-five or thirty-six. Another year. I mean, of the re- written stuff, we're halfway. I would say would probably be my best uh, best guess. Um, but yeah, if you if you're listening to the Merge World soundtrack and you uh, you're listening to the song, and you have a guess who you think this song is for this person or. This song was for this situation. I'd love to hear it. And I don't mind answering questions saying which is for who and what, except for the few songs that uh, their moments haven't come yet. But a large amount of those songs are for stuff that's already happened. So uh, if you have questions about that, hit me up in the Merge Worlds Discord. Throw them in the comments of here. Hit me on Instagram. I would love it. Will you tell the new stories of the community in Merge Worlds like this? I'm not sure. Since that's something that'll be viewable in other areas, I'm not sure if I would. I think that might end up being redundant. Because I'm all my goal is to consistently have a Merge World storyline. Uh, of whether it's these characters or not, I would like to keep telling the story. And then people can play in the world of that. And may run across characters or NPCs and such people have run into before. Um, but there's always going to be the primary storyline. I don't have an end to it in my head. It's going to go on for a very long time. Um, so probably not. I, I, at this point, I don't think so. But I'm not against it. All right. Uh, let's see. Okay. <laughs> for the chair. Yeah, my booty would like that. All right, guys. We're going to call that a day. Thanks for coming by. Click like if you haven't. Subscribe if you haven't. Hit the little bell notification so you know when these things are happening. And uh, we'll get to hang out with you more. Again, special thank you, as always, to my members. Your support of the channel continuously helps this channel grow and gets me closer to being able to do this every day with you. As well as to those of you who have been donating. Again, those donations definitely help go towards the channel. I put them back in and do my best to make sure that we're getting this a uh, bigger and bigger channel. So hopefully one day I can do this full time and we can have streams every single day. Um, that would definitely make playing D&D easier. <laughs> uh, extra special thank you as always to my moderators for with whom I am nothing. Thank you guys for all of your hard work. Tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. A little bit more uh, Sky Factory 4. So hopefully we will see you then. But love you all. Thank you for hanging out with me. And I do hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening.